not be the same. Few people laughed. Few people cried. Most people were silent. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty and to impress him takes on his multi-armed form and says now I am become death the destroyer of worlds I suppose we all thought that one way or another where's everybody where's Ma? She didn't take sick again. Are you Alice Mason? Why, yes. But where are Ma and the kids? Well, they're all safe. Now, there's nothing for you to worry about. Now, sit down. I want to talk to you. I'm Mrs. White of the Welfare Association. You're 17, aren't you, Alice? Yes. But what have you done with my folks? Well, we're trying to help them, Alice, and you too. They were taken to the hospital this afternoon. Hospital? Wasn't one of them sick this morning? Ma isn't worse, is she? Where's Pa? He's gone to the hospital too, Alice. I don't see what for. You're sure you didn't put him in jail? Of course not. I said we were trying to help them. You better tell her. So she'll understand. Well, we thought it necessary to present your family's case to the State Medical Commission. And after an examination, they decided there was but one important action to take. To have your entire family sterilized. Why, what's that? I don't know what you're talking about. Well, we investigated your family's history, Alice. And those of the past three generations have been feeble-minded. Congenital cripples or habitual drunkards. Instead of improving, each generation is more of a problem. Now, in this state, we have a law which provides for such people to have an operation so there won't be any more children. I see. Now, we place your brothers in institutions where they'll be properly cared for. You can go back to your job soon. I'll arrange to have it held open for you. But I'm keeping my job. I'm not going anywhere. Now, you're going to the hospital too, Alice. But there's nothing wrong with me. Perhaps not. You wouldn't want to marry some fine young man and be ashamed of the children you had. And you mean they're going to stop me from having children ever? Exactly. I'm all right, I tell you. I won't go to any hospital. Now, Alice. You must be reasonable. Now, we got a court order. Besides, your parents gave permission. You'll get a chance to tell your side of it in court. I won't go, I tell you. We don't want any trouble with you, young woman. If you refuse to go, the officer here will take you by force. All right. Maybe I'd better go. There might be a chance for me in court. Sure. Of course. Have you ever seen a commie drink a glass of water? Well, yeah, I, I can't say I have, Jack. <laughs> Vodka. That's what they drink, isn't it? Never water? Well, I, I believe that's what they drink, Jack, yes. On no account will a commie ever drink water, and not without good reason.
Oh, ah, yes. I, um, can't quite see what you're getting at, Dad. Water. That's what I'm getting at, water. Mandrake, water is the source of all life. Seven-tenths of this Earth's surface is water. Why do you realize that 70% of you is water? And as human beings, you and I need fresh, pure water to replenish our precious bodily fluids. Yes. Are you beginning to understand? Yes. <laughs> Mandrake. <laughs> Mandrake, have you never wondered why I drink only distilled water or rainwater and only pure grain alcohol? Well, it, it, it did occur to me, Jack, yes. Have you ever heard of a thing called fluoridation? Fluoridation of water? Uh, yes, I, I have heard of that, Jack, yes. Yes. Well, do you know what it is? No. no I, I don't know what it is now. Do you realize that fluoridation is the most monstrously conceived and dangerous communist plot we have ever had to face? <laughs> From deep within the dunes of Africa's Namib Desert, a terrible secret is beginning to emerge. These are the remains of victims of the world's first death camp. A place where thousands of Africans were exterminated by the German army 30 years before the Nazis came to power. These remains have lain here, forgotten, for over a hundred years. But this terrible place is not unique. Scattered across the world are the sites of the massacres and genocides of imperialism. Where millions died in an aspect of colonial history that Europe often chooses to forget. These people were victims of the truth that lies behind the myth of the white man's burden. Throughout the 19th century, European scientists, writers and philosophers developed ideas to justify the mass killings of the Age of Empire. These same theories went on to inspire some of the horrors and the savagery that would consume Europe in the 20th century. I mean, are we just like bored, spoiled children who've just been lying in the bathtub all day, just playing with their plastic duck, and now they're just thinking, well, what can I do? Okay, yes, we are bored. We're all bored now. But has it ever occurred to you, Wally, that the process that creates this boredom that we see in the world now may very well be a self-perpetuating, unconscious form of brainwashing created by a world totalitarian government based on money, and that all of this is much more dangerous than one thinks? And it's not just a question of individual survival, Wally, but that somebody who's bored is asleep, and somebody who's asleep will not say no? See, I keep meeting these people. I mean, 
just a few days ago, I met this man whom I greatly admire. He's a Swedish physicist, Gustav Bjornstrand, and he told me that he no longer watches television, he doesn't read newspapers, and he doesn't read magazines. He's completely cut them out of his life because he really does feel that we're living in some kind of Orwellian nightmare now, and that everything that you hear now contributes to turning you into a robot. And when I was at Findhorn, I met this extraordinary English tree expert who had devoted his life to saving trees. Just got back from Washington, lobbying to save the redwoods. He's 84 years old. He always travels with a backpack because he never knows where he's going to be tomorrow. And when I met him at Findhorn, he said to me, where are you from? And I said, New York. He said, ah, New York, yes, that's a very interesting place. Do you know a lot of New Yorkers who keep talking about the fact that they want to leave but never do? And I said, oh, yes. And he said, why do you think they don't leave? I gave him different banal theories. He said, oh, I don't think it's that way at all. He said, I think that New York is the new model for the new concentration camp, where the camp has been built by the inmates themselves, and the inmates are the guards, and they have this pride in this thing they've built. They've built their own prison, and so they exist in a state of schizophrenia, where they are both guards and prisoners, and as a result, they no longer have, having been lobotomized, the capacity to leave the prison they've made or to even see it as a prison. And then he went into his pocket and he took out a seed for a tree and he said, this is a pine tree. He put it in my hand and he said, escape before it's too late. See, actually for two or three years now, Chiquita and I have had this very unpleasant feeling that we really should get out. That we really should feel like Jews in Germany in the late 30s. Get out of here. Of course, the problem is where to go because it seems quite obvious that the whole world is going in the same direction. See, I think it's quite possible that the 1960s represented the last burst of the human being before he was extinguished, and that this is the beginning of the rest of the future now, and that from now on there'll simply be all these robots walking around, feeling nothing, thinking nothing, and there'll be nobody left almost to remind them that there once was a species called a human being, with feelings and thoughts, and that history and memory are right now being erased, and soon nobody will really remember that life existed on the planet. Now, of course, Bjornstrand feels that there's really almost no hope, and that we're probably going back to a very savage, lawless, terrifying period. Findhorn people see it a little differently. They're feeling that there'll be these pockets of light springing up in different parts of the world and that these will be, in a way, invisible planets on this planet. And that as we, or the world, grow colder, we can take invisible space journeys to these different planets, refuel for what it is we need to do on the planet itself, and come back. And it's their feeling that there have to be centers now where people can come and reconstruct a new future for the world. And when I was talking to uh, Gustav Bjornstrand, he was saying that actually these centers are growing up everywhere now. And that what they're trying to do, which is what Findhorn was trying to do, and in a way, what I was trying to do, I mean, these things can't be given names, but in a way, these are all attempts at creating a new kind of school or a new kind of monastery. And Bjornstrand talks about the concept of reserves, islands of safety, where history can be remembered and the human being can continue to function in order to maintain the species through a dark age. In other words, we're talking about an underground, which did exist in a different way during the dark ages among the mystical orders of the church. And the purpose of this underground is to find out how to preserve the light, life, the culture, 
how to keep things living. You see, I keep thinking that what we need is a new language. A, a language of the heart. Languages in the Polish forest where language wasn't needed. Some kind of language between people that is a new kind of poetry. That's the poetry of the dancing bee that tells us where the honey is. And I think that in order to create that language, you're going to have to learn how you can go through a looking glass into another kind of perception where you have that sense of being united to all things and suddenly you understand everything. Are you ready for some dessert? Uh, I think I'll just have an espresso. Thank you. I'll, I'll also have one. Thank you. And, and uh, could I also have uh, an amaretto? Certainly, sir. Thank you. Do you realize, comrade, the implications of the weapon that has been placed at your disposal? You may remove your head bandage, Raymond. Normally conditioned American who's been trained to kill then to have no memory of having killed. Without memory of his deed, he cannot possibly feel guilt. Nobody, of course, have any reason to fear being caught. And having been relieved of those uniquely American symptoms, guilt and fear, he cannot possibly give himself away. Ah, though Raymond will remain an outwardly normal, productive, sober and respected member of the community. And I should say, if properly used, entirely police-proof, his brain has not only been washed, as they say, it has been dry-cleaned. <laughs> Thank you, Raymond. You may replace your hat, Sandy. We have a lesson that we might give a lot of thought to these days. There's a great deal of criticism of television programming, but that is not going to be the burden of my discussion this morning. I have something else that seems to me to be infinitely more important, and that is that man is no longer simply a biped without feathers, as Diogenes likened him. Man is a thinking creature. He should not be brought up by a, a trainer like a dog. He should not be taught only to obey. He should not be fed because he obeys. He should not have a life of luxury, perhaps, because he happens to obey a rich person. The actual problem is that the human being has a mind that was given to him to think with. It was an active organ, an organ to do something. It was not simply a receptive faculty to listen, to hear, and to see. Most people in various fields of activity never participate in those practices and policies which stretch the mental power and make it do things that we want it to do. In modern world, we train the mind by education to give us a profession or a trade or a craft or membership in a union or whatever it may be. We listen to the instruction, we get the job, we stay with the job, 
And in all this procedure, we have done very little thinking. We have followed policy, we have obeyed rules, we have done what the boss told us to, and we may have taken a few special courses in computerization or something of that nature. But the real creative faculties of the mind have not been used at all. So at the end of one of these harrowing days, in which uh, most of the harrow has now been eliminated, we go home, sit down, and sit down in front of the television, and perhaps spend anywhere from two to six hours watching what? We're not watching anything that was going to make us really think a good deal. If it's an educational program, it will be turned off very quickly. We watch sports, we listen to the news, which is usually highly uh, influenced politically. We go through a few horror dramas, westerns, a few very poor humor programs, and then settle down to the great run of family epics, in which uh, we learn nothing, but may choose one or two characters to pull for because they seem to create sympathy and one or two whom we love to hate because we don't like them. Now this constitutes a big intellectual experience. And by the time we have finished with that we are so exhausted we fall into bed. In the daytime we have all kinds of domestic programs programs which may or may not bear upon any factual situation. We may have a few instructive ones on non-commercial programming. But we listen, we watch, and that just go out and get a cold beer or something of this nature. Nothing happens upstairs in ourselves. Nothing is being developed as a factor in the growth of our own thinking. We are not thinking, actually, and if we are thinking, we are not doing anything about it because most of the thoughts are non-factual. So here we go, all through an entire lifetime, surrounded by all types of information, which we accept only through the eyes and ears. And when the time comes, we do very little to solve our own problems. A person whose mind is being used every day to find new values, accomplish new works, do new things that have not been done, improve the quality of living, solve the personal problems of his life. These are the things that help to exercise the mind. But to drift along from work to television to bed and then up and again the next day is not doing anything to make people. It is only continuing a humdrum, which is only one step above animal existence. This means that in some respect, we need creative programs. Now, a creative program is something that we do because basically we want to express ourselves. We do not wish merely to do what everyone else does. We want to do something that will satisfy our own inner impulses. But for the most part, these impulses just are not active enough to give us any positive directive. So it seems that one thing we have to do to get away from this uh, hypnosis of the tube is to realize that we have faculties within ourselves 
that do not need to be subjected to this continual negative conditioning. That we are simply capable of thinking rather than merely of watching the antics of someone else. It's so everywhere today. In music we have the same problem. Uh, we go and listen to a good concert and we applaud the performers but for the most part we do not think of putting ourselves under the discipline of music. Another individual is much interested in the dance but he can barely stay on his feet on the ballroom floor. We see people that are interested in all kinds of crafts. They collect them but they don't create them. Now something has to happen to change our way of life from admiring the creations of others to the development of creative capacity in ourselves. So if we want to really have a, a, a great history, we can study our own inner lives. If we want a great theater, we can be the, both the audience and the cast. If we want any of the inner understandings which make for philosophy, mysticism, and so forth, they're all available inside of ourselves. The only thing we've got to do is bring it out. And we bring it out by dedication, gaining strength in the inner life just as the athlete gains it by daily discipline. By the proper mental, emotional disciplines, we can become healthy individuals in terms of our minds, our emotions, our hearts, and our jobs. These are the things we've got to work for. And if it means that we must do it, we can with one quick twist to the wrist get rid of most of the corruptions of society and face the fact that these are imaginary corruptions. We've got plenty of real ones. We don't have to build them up that way. What we've got to do is find out what corruptions are still lurking in us and correct them. And as soon as we correct the mistakes in ourselves, we begin to see better values in other people because we see in others usually what we are ourselves focused upon. So we live there. Don't let the great big bad tube get you. Uh, be very careful about it. And when uncertain, turn it off. And you'll find that if you turn it off to do something interesting, beautiful, or wonderful, you will never miss it again. You cannot turn it off successfully until there is something you want to be or something you want to do right then and there. It is more important than the truth. You think it out that way and see it work out all right.
Welcome, everyone, to the Creature of Control podcast series. This is episode three, the crypto evolution of epigenics and population control. This is your host, Tyler Bloyer, and the website is withinthestones.com, www.withinthestones.com. You can get a hold of me there, and you can get a hold of me at my email, tsbloyer at gmail.com. Stop by the website and poke around a little bit. I'm trying to get more content on that site as time goes on. And keep in mind, during this podcast, we're just here exploring, and I'm attempting to bring a tapestry of information by way of an audio podcast series and by way of utilizing clips of audio from various sources that I've decided to use based on things that I've come to understand, not necessarily through the clips being utilized in these podcast episodes, but rather through an eclectic array of sources that I've come across over the years and only am trying to bring together through 
presenting it here in this format, an audio collage of clips that'll hopefully try to paint a picture that in the end result would be a manifestation of an ultimately broader understanding of the environment around us and being able to react to that environment in a positive way rather than continue to create negativity and manifest negative chaos in the form of some of the things that we'll be discussing here in this podcast series. As one of the great American philosophers said, Vernon Howard, human sickness is so severe that few can bear to look at it, but those who do will become well. So there's probably not going to be as many episodes in this series that have such dark or disturbing or difficult content to go through than this episode here. So if we can make it through this episode, then it may be all downhill from here. Um, The idea behind this podcast is just to present a continuous stream of information, again, of ideas and concepts that I've come to understand for myself, and I'm attempting to incorporate certain philosophies into my own life while obviously rejecting others and exposing certain things uh, to do my part and take my part in helping people to understand certain dynamics happening around them in the world. And so we're just here to shed light on certain information that, again, can hopefully empower the individuals to take positive action rather than sitting around and having to spend so much time putting together podcast series because of the necessity at this time for people to bring forth certain information you know the idea would be to get past that point and and so certain individuals can do more creative things with their time than spend it doing things like this such as myself because ultimately this type of information is important and i understand the importance of looking at it and trying to put it out there, but it's not ultimately what I'd prefer. Maybe like the lower part of me doesn't really want to spend their time doing, but feels the necessity of doing it. And that's, that's why I'm spending the time doing this here. And maybe at a later point in my life, I won't feel like I'll have to spend so much time focusing on something like this. But it just really just seems more of a reaction to again the understanding that I've been able to come to through other teachers and through people that have decided to spend time and the painstaking effort that it requires to go through and take the time to relay certain topics to people that otherwise wouldn't be presented to them in from any other sources that we have around us in the modern time especially with the complete uh, infiltration of our information spectrum through the corporate owned media and just the large amount of propaganda that's still being utilized to control humanity and hopefully we can get into an episode later that would touch on more of the aspects such as corporate-owned media and the propaganda machine. So just, you know, we're just here exploring. I'm just here asking questions. 
and although I might have been able to look into some of these things and do some deep research on some of these topics I'm just here like you are just exploring and asking questions and looking into this information and there's no threat in that way to feel like someone's trying to dictate anything or that someone's trying to persuade anyone but again you know it's up to each individual to take it upon themselves to do their own research and I'm just trying to prompt uh, a direction or open a door to another way of looking at things by putting out my own creative way of looking at things that I've been looking at and rather than just doing that myself and not get the most out of looking into these topics by also enjoying the creative process while doing that in order to help others as they come across and pick up the breadcrumbs so that Maybe the load is less for them to handle so that it's not as difficult for future generations. And that's, you know, again, just me continuing on what others have done before me and attempting to carry on the work. That's all. Nothing new, nothing that anybody else hasn't done, and not exploring any information that isn't really already out there. There's no threat here as far as something that's going to you know, I mean, obviously I'm attempting to shake up some belief systems and some paradigms that need to be worked on and hammered on by people that can see the dynamics and the harm that those belief systems are causing should speak out against them and use even possibly acidic speech or vitriol to break down those systems. And that's kind of like an alchemical reference to breaking something down with acid to make it easier to to break apart and pull apart. So you have to pound on something for a little while and use vitriolic language sometimes to hammer on that dynamic and break it down and even be repetitive sometimes and maybe even somewhat not annoying but uh, persistent with some philosophy that needs to be looked at more heavily and picked apart and really analyzed before moving forward so that we can all make sure that we're standing on solid ground. So I don't feel like it's negative or a negative thing to point out any of this information that we're going through here and if you feel that way then honestly information whether it makes you feel negative or not doesn't take away the truth or the veracity of the information just and that doesn't also doesn't mean that it shouldn't be looked into just because it maybe makes you feel negative or whatever but it's not negative to point out information especially if it's going to assist people in getting to where they say they want to be and if humanity says it wants freedom and prosperity but is not willing to take in the knowledge and the information that needs to be understood in order to get there, then that's somewhat of a contradiction. A society or whole people who are willing to remain ignorant of information or what's going on around them, and who refuse to investigate the information about the reality around them, they'll only manifest negative chaos and slavery, and support human control systems sometimes without even realize what they're 
doing without realizing that they're supporting systems that are causing humanity pain and suffering. And, you know, deep down a lot of these people love their servitude to the system, though. And so, because they don't want to have to think for themselves or be responsible for themselves, then they love the way that things are right now. They love the fact that they're just told what to do by their masters and not they don't have to worry about thinking for themselves. But also, most of these people say that they want freedom and that they claim they love liberty and freedom. So if someone says that they're trying to get to Denver but they're headed to Miami, then it's not incorrect for someone else to come along and try to tell them that they're headed in the wrong direction. So if someone truly wants freedom and prosperity for themselves and the rest of humanity, but at the same time wants to remain in ignorance of the harm their belief systems are causing, and they want to remain in ignorance about the information that needs to be understood in order to get what they claim they want, then that person will never actually get what they say they want, which is freedom and prosperity. And the causal factors of the current conditions humanity um, is in have to be deeply understood and addressed. If we want to shake up the status quo of the current conditions that we're in now, which is not uh, a condition of ultimate human freedom and prosperity and We have manifestations of conditions of slavery and control systems that need to be abandoned and let go of. And so we can't just sit around and say, you know, what do you mean? Everything's fine. Everything around me looks hunky-dory. I don't know what you're talking about, you know. I go out in the world and I see that everything's perfectly fine and nothing needs to be done to address any of the stuff that you're talking about here. Well, you know, everything is not fine. And unless you're okay with tyranny, and unless you're okay with a psychopathic elite ruling over ignorant slave masses and turning you into a slave because of those ignorant slave masses, you know, if you're all right with that, then fine, everything's fine with with that condition since you're okay with human slavery. But for those of us that would rather not have those conditions in place then everything is not okay, and we would like to change that status quo so that we can not be in those conditions. So it's not negative to come along and try to point someone in the right direction, especially when they are in contradiction by their statements and their actions. And so no one wants to force anything down anyone's throat, of course, but at the same time, This information is here for whoever is ready to take it in and those who are ready to hear it and willing to take the actions required in order to, you know, verify things for themselves and never just believe what I am saying and not to ever just take in what I'm saying as something that might be true or not. You have to take your own time and research things in your own way if you're listening to this anyways, I'm assuming that the information is somewhat interesting to you if you've come this far, at least listening to the episode sequentially if you are at this point in time. I'm not trying to date the episodes necessarily because they're not coming out very frequently and they're not 
really all that relevant to a current timeline, and most of the time, podcasts like this end up getting listened to in the future anyways, so it's more or less just trying to archive the information, possibly even for future audiences, it may be more beneficial for them than anyone listening, you know, currently, or live, or anywhere near where the podcast is actually released. We need not to forget that also we are looking into occult matters and things that by their very nature are outside of the status quo. So it's not something that most people could relate to right off the bat out of their massively controlled environment. So the information discussed here is not in the mainstream and the vast majority of people will not understand the links I'm presenting here if it's the first time they're hearing it and that's fine but then there's another group of people that they're not hearing anything new you know and that's fine too I didn't learn this information again from the clips that I'm using here in the episode it's something that I've learned and up by doing my own research, reading books and listening to podcasts, and yes, watching videos, but, you know, I didn't put the Creature of Control topic together from watching a few podcast videos, so, or, sorry, you know, videos on YouTube. Uh, At this point, quite a few years of research are now being woven together, and through the coming years, hopefully the weave can get tighter, and I can use that, and we can, anyone listening can help us all grow together as we move forward through these episodes. And there'll be other series on the website with different topics, all relating back to the topic of, ultimately, the conditions of humanity currently, and what it's going to take to get us out of those conditions, ultimately. So, I've had a conversation with somebody recently, and we were discussing topics related to this episode 3, oh, population specifically, and I was talking about a lot of the propaganda that the United Nations uses to get people in a state of mind of thinking that the world is overpopulated, and that person's response was something along the lines of, well, I've never heard of that. As in, as if to say, since they'd never heard of what I'd been saying regarding the United Nations and the propaganda they use to get people to feel as though population is a problem, their reasoning that they hadn't heard of it before, they were suggesting as though that meant what I was saying had less value or that it wasn't true. And... You know, I've known this person for a while, and they've admitted to me, or, you know, not admitted, but told me straight up that they don't really consider looking into things or researching things high priority for them. Let's just put it that way. They don't, they'd rather not have the burden of having to do that. But yet, also thinks that because they haven't heard of something that I'm using to make a point, that that means it can't be true. And again, we have to keep in mind that this information isn't going to be out in the mainstream and you're not going to hear about it at work with your coworkers. Most people aren't going to have heard of some of the things discussed here and it's not going to be discussed on the 9 o'clock evening news 
that, you know, there's large agendas going on that could be actively practicing negative eugenics out in the open, something like that doesn't come across the highlights on the newsreel. Viewing the world as being overpopulated shows an extreme lack of imagination in the individual, and it's a fear-based mindset. It's definitely not something that's coming from love or something that's coming from true care, thinking that in scarcity or scarcity-based mindsets, fear-based thinking, it's not coming from a place of true compassion or love, things that are more natural to the natural state of a human being. It's a conditioned response to want to live in scarcity and see the world as overpopulated or that humans themselves are the direct problem. It's not as simple as that and it's almost like a cop-out to really addressing the issues that are around us which are a lot bigger and a lot more complex than just overpopulation going to solve all of our problems and then voting people into office to fix those problems for us that actually are just manipulating people into supporting things that are only furthering the control system and furthering the process of human enslavement and the growing of the creature of control. Overpopulation is more or less being perceived by people in big cities or in vast suburban areas that are crowded into small places and see the pollution problems and see hunger happening across different places around the world. And it can seem like population is definitely a problem in a place like Mexico City where you've got 20 million people in a condensed small area and pollution and sewage and food and things like that and sanitation start to become an issue, then yeah, population starts to seem like a problem in a condition like that. But again, in a world of infinite possibilities, or in a universe of infinite possibilities, there's infinite potential for human beings to address the problems around us without having to consider regression and depopulation and blaming human beings for the problems rather than just addressing the issues that need to be addressed that could all probably be addressed with the current existing technologies that we have now. And probably in less than 50 years, you know, we could organize all the currently existing technology that we have to solve any of the food shortage problems or energy problems or environmental issues. And at the rate that the technology we have now is moving forward, even though the vast majority of humanity doesn't really understand even some of the technology that probably does exist on this planet, but even though that's true, there's a large amount of technology that is known and could just be utilized now to solve a lot of the problems that we have that is being perceived as an overpopulation problem, but really it's just a problem of utilizing the proper solutions that we're not using because, and a lot of that comes back to 
the creature and the and greed and power and wanting to maintain the current paradigm rather than shift into a abundance and shift into more reflecting of what the universe is around us infinite possibilities and not scarcity and not problem of lack because we have infinite abundance not lack again it's a problem with the imagination and the individual if they perceive the world as overpopulated and to make a definitive statement like that most people won't like to hear that but that's I don't think that's just my opinion. I perceive that to be the case. So I have a positive outlook for humanity, but it's a choice. And it's a future that we have to work for and that it has to be worked on. So there's a really good possibility that that's not going to happen, but it's definitely a choice still for humanity. And it always is a choice to have an ultimate positive outcome. So... People that are advocating population control themselves, again, they're not really actually doing anything to change the situation. They're mainly just advocating that government goes out and fixes the problems for them. Um, I don't see a lot of real action on part of those that are worried. I just see a lot of manipulation. That's what I see. I just see those people being heavily manipulated into holding a certain worldview that gets them into a worldview not only that makes them easier to be controlled, but then they support systems and support things that are that end up furthering the enslavement of them and future generations just because of this operating in a reactionary fear-based mindset that's being propagated by those that want people to think that the world is overpopulated. When you do that and you advocate others to go out and solve these problems of overpopulation for you, then who decides how to implement the population control? Who is it that gets to decide how to fix that problem when you're when we empower large groups of other people and as we've discussed in previous episode one and in two that there's psychopaths that make some of these decisions so part of exposing this creature of control is is the whole thing it's exposing the whole problem of the belief in authority and the belief in being able to grant rights to groups of people that individuals themselves don't have. And we'll get into this in later episodes, but to touch on it briefly here, that's a lot of the problem of the creature of control is not necessarily that there is this problem of a human sickness that ends up creating this creature of control, but it's the people that allow it to happen to them and advocate that there's such a thing as a higher authority in man that can do things and have certain rights that other people themselves don't have you know as as an example just mandatory taxation i don't hold this right but a lot of people around me believe that they can grant that right to groups of other people just because it's called 
authority or because it's called government that somehow you can grant a right that they themselves don't have can be granted to a large group of people that it's fundamentally flawed and so if you're operating on a fundamentally flawed foundation then obviously you'll result negative chaos in that situation and that's something again that will be discussed later on but the way we're going now is that there'll be a small group of ruling elite people that those are the ones that will get to decide on how population control is implemented and those are, those are the folks that get to decide for us how things are carried out for this problem this perceived problem but you know they've claimed that they have earned this advancement in society by their psychopathic tendencies right so due to their social Darwinist viewpoints, they have the right to rule over us and make these decisions about population control, right? Which is all flawed. That's all flawed, and that's what we're talking about. Talking. That's why we're spending so much time talking about it here, obviously. It starts to come together again, and that's as the series goes on, hopefully it will all come together even better. And the reason why we are spending so much time to go through and nitpick this stuff apart is because the causal factors that led to the problems we have manifesting on the planet now have to be understood in order to resolve the issues we have currently going on right now. So, And we heard about misplaced aggression back in episode 2 from that human resources clip and frustration aggression and... I perceive that this overpopulation myth seems to be linked into that as well, you know, that it's a misunderstanding, and so there's a perceived frustration, obviously even intuitively understood by everyone, that there is problems and things that need to be addressed, and so if you don't drink in the information deeply and really understand the dynamics, then misplaced aggression could definitely occur, you know, and then you end up being part of a cause or spending a lot of time on something that's actually not really addressing the problem. And that's what these new age religions are. That's what modern religions are. That's what the belief in authority is. It's all there to corral human energy into being basically diffused to not be brought to its full potential because those that are the creature of control perceive that to be very threatening to their way of being so there's all this false information and false stuff out there that's only there to to disarm the individuals in order to manipulate large populations and now it's done so easily through the deep understanding of human psychology by these so-called controllers who really aren't controlling anything but a big wet dream of theirs because it's all really, you know, something that they'll never fully achieve. Their grand plan is not possible because of the true human nature and how powerful that we really are. It's really just a joke. And even though they might even 
be successful in the short term in the long run you know it's not possible to hold down a balloon underwater for very long when you let go it comes right back up to the top in its natural state floating above the water and it can't be held down because as soon as it's let go it bounces right back up to the top and so just putting people in a scarcity based mindset makes them a lot easier to control and so sure there's certain issues that need to be addressed but again looking at population control as a solution to the issues is more like looking at the leaves rather than the roots of the problem and it's not even really the right leaves anyways you know and even through looking at eugenics or social darwinism is still really kind of discussing the the leaves on the tree or the branches but it's still a lot closer to the roots and we'll be getting there in future episodes as well the reason eugenics is being discussed basically in tandem with social darwinism is that there are groups of people that are in power on this planet who practice these belief systems heavily and that's how they justify their actions and so it's important for us to kind of analyze this these worldviews and pick them apart if this is what a lot of the controllers advocate and what are some referred to as the dark occult so they're not only practicing this through propaganda or so-called education but they also practice their belief systems physically and psychologically by manipulating and attacking the general public in many ways Um, that the average person does not perceive or is not really even aware of. And so, if you're not in the power elite, the ruling class, then this stuff applies to you. So, it doesn't matter if you're well off or, you know, doing well and making a really good living and living in a really nice house with your family and everything's perceived to be just fine and I'm not saying that it that that can't be a mindset and I'm not saying that being happy is not important of course you know we all have to be psychologically healthy but that does not mean we need to ignore certain information and it doesn't mean this stuff doesn't affect you and your family let's get into the word eugenics itself so eugenics the definition and the etymology really comes from Francis Galton and he derived it from the ancient Greek use or good EUS and gignomia or breeding um, and so it's good breeding so Galton's definition was eugenics is the study of the agencies under social control that may improve or impair the racial qualities of future generations either physically or mentally a lot of modern eugenics movements are not walking around saying that they're actively practicing eugenics. Um, these groups are concealed and they're flying under the flags of environmentalist groups or humanitarian groups. Um, it's one thing to be concerned with the environment and, and it's another thing to actively practice and reduce the population through vaccination, GMOs, fluoride, geoengineering, pharmaceuticals epi-eugenic methods or crypto-eugenics which crypto-eugenics is the operations that fly under the flag of names like 
humanitarian efforts or philanthropy. Um, the concept of crypto eugenics will be discussed in upcoming clips from James Corbett. He has an eye-opener report, Life and Death Biothics as Crypto Eugenics. And, you know, again, the psychopaths don't come right out and say, hey, we want to filter out your race so only our race can carry on. You know, they have to fly under the flag of philanthropy or humanitarianism. You know, a lot of these people are carrying out these agendas. They're sick individuals. They have an actual sickness, and they're propagating this throughout society. And Matthew Connolly, from his book Fatal Misconception, The Struggle to Control World Population, says... They had to pursue a strategy called crypto-eugenics. In essence, you seek to fulfill the aims of eugenics without disclosing what you are really aiming at and without mentioning the word. This is how the eugenics society conceived of its funding of the IPPF. The IPPF that Connolly spoke of was the International Planned Parenthood Federation. So, the form of eugenics kind of being highlighted here is a mainly concerned with the Anglo-American establishment or the British establishment. The Anglo-American establishment being the British influence on American society, an American establishment. The Anglophiles. In future episodes, We'll get deeper into characters like Lionel Curtis or Cecil John Rhodes and the Roundtable Groups or societies like The Group or The Order. I'm talking about Skull and Bones, 322, The Pilgrim Society and other groups like this who are involved in the British takeover of American society. We now have people coming out of the woodworks with the same concepts and mindsets and ideologies that were organized out of the late 19th and 20th century. And the people practicing negative eugenics are like humanity's autoimmune disease, like attacking ourselves, our intraspecific kleptoparasite. And they've become adept at operating their control apparatus to this point in history. The creature's understanding of human psychology, human wants, human desires, weakness, psychological weakness, and how to exploit those weaknesses, making people dependent, apathetic, needy, lazy, and distracted, leads us into the next topic, which is epigenetics. The science of epigenetics can be better understood by briefly looking at epigenetics, which The science of epigenetics studies how the environment affects genes. It doesn't doesn't only look at genes being just on or off, but epigenetics is the study of inherent changes in phenotype or gene expression caused by mechanisms other than changes in the underlying DNA sequence. So outside of or around the environment influencing the genes through the environment around the genes. So it's not just on or off in a simple science of dumb material, but rather that genetic traits could be influenced through generations, through 
environmental influences. So we can take that concept of epigenetics and apply that to eugenics, and we get the term epi-eugenics. And the first that I heard this term, and I believe it was coined by a researcher and a great presenter of information, a deocultist, Mark Passio, he was one of the horsemen of my own personal apocalypse. But in other words, epigenetics is passing on eugenics through generations. Eugenics that the population will practice on themselves because of what they've been taught to believe about the world. And the creature of control is always seeking more power and more control. And so in their sick minds, less people means easier control and more power for the creature. So this is a sick worldview, obviously, but they've done a terrific job at getting others to join them in their mass call for human extermination through things like epi-eugenics. It's a form of crypto-eugenics. It's being practiced under the guise of some other reason, you know, but the end result is population reduction and race purification. And crowding people into small areas is a form of epi-eugenics. Pushing the belief systems of overpopulation as epi-eugenics. Scarcity as epi-eugenics. Creating environments of scarcity and pumping in scarcity-based mentality. Again, the universe is infinite with infinite possibilities. And as human beings manifested in the physical body, we have the ability to manipulate the infinite field. And thinking that there's scarcity and limiting humans to finite resources with the extreme lack of imagination and failure in that individual, they're not going to see who and what they really are. And global warming is definitely another form those using these tools of epigenetics are pushing the Club of Rome or Al Gore. You'll hear more about the Club of Rome and global warming in upcoming clips, but just scarcity in general or fear-based mindsets, again, is a form of epigenetics. The lack of imagination when looking at things from fear, the end result of that will be eugenics on that population of people held in that mindset. Another example actually would be both people or a couple in a relationship getting overworked or striving for careers that require long work hours with a value system of only thinking that these things are the most important and not having time to look at the possibility of carrying on their genes and not that working towards a career is bad, but when your plans to create a family is being hindered, then you have to question the priorities and values. Chasing fake money or in order to make your life more comfortable and have more things is so much more important than bringing human beings and raising them properly in this world and instilling proper mor moral values in them and raising warriors that will not tolerate tyranny and will stand up to the lie, you know. If chasing fake money and working on a career is more important than those things, especially 
in people who find them in situ- find themselves in situations where they already have children hopefully you can understand the dynamic I'm trying to touch on there but I think another form of epigenetics would be neo-feminism as epigenetics or the war on masculinity the war on testosterone women who worship the government as protector and caregiver and who selectively breed with those particular types of men who also worship authority and who also aren't able to stand up to tyranny because of their perceived need to go along with the woman's need for having her psychological dependencies filled by big daddy and big mommy government as a form of epigenetics because it's filtering out a particular type of male who may be more rebellious to the status quo and to the current comfort systems and again this is all being heavily manipulated on the other end so i'm not just saying that females are to blame but the feminist movement has been hijacked into what i'm talking about here as the neo-feminist movement which utilizing that as a form of eugenics as a form of breeding out a certain type of male to purify the race into having more docility, into having a male that's less aggressive towards the system. because, And that's manipulated towards women because of their need for comfort and their need for keeping things a little bit less unstable. And so that, pers- that need for comfort creates the need for s- not having rebellion and not standing up to tyrants, especially tyrants that are being perceived as caregiver and protector. If it's the big protector, then nobody can talk bad about big protector, big mommy and big daddy government. You can't talk out against them. So if that's the mainstream woman that every man thinks that he needs to try to shape up to get or to be with, which is another problem, but um, that's going to propagate only a certain mentality, a certain type of male. So women selectively choosing a proper mate based on income levels primarily or things like that, it gets the man not interested in defending truth or defending freedom, but he's interested in getting more things because women who he's trying to attract are only concerned with material things. And I'm not on the attack against women here. I'm just saying that there is a dynamic of neo-feminism, a hijacked uh, attack on the masculine aspect and attacking males specifically aggressive males or more rebellious type males and you know they have no interest in fighting tyranny or standing up for what's right they want that comfort which is normal especially for women so the creature of control has played this dynamic like a fiddle and more things along the lines of epigenetics would be estrogenizing the foods, same thing, the attack on testosterone, or plastic-containing BPA, it's a estrogen mimicker, so there's other plastic-containing estrogen mimickers that also add to the feminization of the modern male, which 
only allows the creature of control to continue to grow without without anyone confronting this. Another thing as a form of epigenics is the suppression of certain medical technologies, and I'm not going to go very deep into that here because we'll have a whole episode on the medical control system and modern Rockefeller allopathic medicine. But again, the suppression of certain medical technologies is definitely a form of epigenics because it's possible there's a possibility of even losing some knowledge that is already been has already been obtained that of certain cures through more plant-based medicine that's being bred out through the allopathic again modern mainly rockefeller formed medicine that's being practiced in society right now in other words the use of chemicals to cure people rather than the use of plant medicine which there's some very powerful plant medicine and the wisdom is here with us it's just not being utilized in the mainstream which again is a form of epigenics to carry out population control through disease and sickness rather than curing and helping people again all coming back to this fear-based way of looking at the world that we need to reduce large groups of populations through forms like this and obviously war as epigenics or sending people off to be killed um, it's hard to reproduce if you're busy killing people or being killed if you're involved in the military not saying they don't have families but at the same time there's a lot less chance that you're likely going to have the possibility to reproduce if you're off deployed in foreign lands and possibly getting killed. Who are the groups pushing this stuff? Who are some of these larger exposed groups that we can see practicing out in the open the propaganda of a lot of the stuff we're talking about and actually pushing the agenda? Well, I'd like to go over a few of those groups and let the remainder of the podcast cover the rest of that, but if we talk about organizations involved in so-called population control or sustainable development or sustainable growth, a lot of these new words of kind of like a crypto-eugenics, we have to discuss the Club of Rome, and they're a global think tank organization and just like we'll see the creature of control uses think tanks and secret societies and the banking international banking cartel to kind of run this apparatus and the first levels that you can kind of start to see are these groups but they're definitely not the end-all be-all of the mechanism that's going on they're just the exposed aspect that most people still ignore anyways and aren't aware of anyways but these are the types of groups that you can actually go out and read books on and you know, discuss it openly and have reliable source material to be able to give to people and not seem like the crazy conspiracy theorists, quote-unquote, even though that's still what you'll get labeled anyways, even for bringing up a group even as openly known about as the Club of Rome, which is a globalist New World Order group, and it's heavily stocked with Bilderberg members, and there are many groups like this again out there in the open but other groups like this would be the committee of 300 or skull and bones 
the Yale Secret Society, the Bohemian Club, the Bilderberg Group, the Trilateral Commission, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Royal Institute of International Affairs out of London, also known as Chatham House, the Club of Rome, they're about eugenics. The name Sustainable Development, which is heavily focused on population control, is, is you know, the word that the Club of Rome uses for their agendas. And they were founded in 1968 at David Rockefeller's estate in Bellagio, Italy. And the meeting for the founding was organized by Aurelio Pache who is attributed with founding the club. David Rockefeller is an executive member of the Club of Rome, the Council on Foreign Relations. He founded the Trilateral Commission. He's a globalist, and the list goes on and on for that character. But in 1972, the Club of Rome published the alarmist Limits to Growth, warning of worldwide overpopulation and the need for sustainable development, i.e. population reduction. That's one of their publications among many, and a quote from one of their publications, The First Global Revolution, written by Alexander King and Bertrand Snyder, goes, The, com the common enemy of humanity is man. In searching for a new enemy to unite us, we came up with the idea that population, the threat of global warming, water shortages, famine, and the like will fit the bill. All these dangers are caused by human intervention, and it is only through changes, changed attitudes and behavior that they can be overcome. The real enemy, then, is humanity itself. And another quote coming from Mikhail Gorbachev, the former president of the Soviet Union and a member of the Club of Rome. We must speak more clearly about sexuality, contraception, and abortions, about values and control of population, because the ecological crisis, in short, is the population crisis. Cut the population by 90%, and there aren't enough people left to do a great deal of ecological damage. And Ted Turner, a member of the club, says, A total population of 250 to 300 million people, a 95% decline from present levels, would be ideal. Ted Turner was the founder of CNN and major UN donor, uh, obviously a member of the Club of Rome. Other notable members would be Avril Harriman, George Soros, Hen Henry Kissinger, Bill Gates, Zbigniew Berninski, and Queen Beatrix of the Netherlands. Another organization is the United Nations that should be brought up here, and the United Nations was created after World War II to replace the failed League of Nations as a worldwide intergovernmental organization. And the United Nations had figures like Maurice Strong, who died recently, uh, a prominent figure in the United Nations and also a member of the Club of Rome and an advisor to the World Bank and many other figures who operate in a way to bring about this globalist plot, the globalist agenda. 
and you'll see the revolving door with groups like the Club of Rome or the Trilateral Commission or the Council on Foreign Relations or the Royal Institute of International Affairs working alongside with the United Nations to bring about the globalist agenda. And the United Nations is evolved as also a sustainable development group, population control, through their action plan, Agenda 21. And a good way, I guess, to understand Agenda 21 is to look at Rosa Kaur's work. She's the author of the book Behind the Green Mask, the UN Agenda 21, and she does a good job summarizing what Agenda 21 is in her statement, and I'll include links in the show notes. She says, UN Agenda 21 Sustainable Development is the action plan implemented worldwide to inventory and control all land, all water, all minerals, all plants, all animals, all construction, all means of production, all energy, all education, all information, and all human beings in the world. Inventory and control. And again, Agenda 21 is the action plan for the United Nations, and it's being implemented worldwide, and it comes out of the UNSAID conference, which was first held in Rio de Janeiro in June 1992. And another group that should be brought up here, along with several others that I'll go over quickly, would be the Rockefeller Foundation. Their funding of various German eugenics programs included the laboratory of Otmar Freher von Verschewer, for whom Joseph Mengel worked before he went to Auschwitz, and in 1927, the Rockefeller Foundation provided funds to construct the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Anthropology, Human Heredity, and Eugenics in Berlin, which came under the dictatorship and appropriately of the appropriately named Eugene Fisher. Standard Oil, which was also a John D. Rockefeller creation coming out of the Rockefeller's empire, was involved in producing technologies that eventually helped the Nazis produce the oil required to run their war operations. And through Standard Oil's technical association with IG Farben, they helped to build Hitler's war machine. IG Farben was Germany's major chemical company, and among the Rockefeller and Standard Oil American connection to the building up of the Nazis, there were many other American companies, including, and not limited to, other factions of Standard Oil, such as Standard Oil of New Jersey, which, through their transfer of technology, helped the Germans produce synthetic rubber. And we also have Ford Motor Company, General Motors, General Electric, IBM, and figures like Prescott Sheldon Bush, who was the grandfather of George W. Bush and father of Poppy Bush. And through his connections with Brown Brothers Harriman and the Union Banking Corporation... He helped to bring the Nazis to power and also profited heavily uh, out of that situation. There's obviously a lot more that I'm leaving out there, but I'm just leaving a few breadcrumbs that can be picked up, and we'll pick up that thread later in this series as well. But this episode will outline several other of the connections that I've discussed here and maybe left out as well. 
you know, we have to think that people like this that we're hearing about and discussing here in this episode, they haven't just disappeared. They're the people that are funding these ideologies and funding these eugenics operations didn't just go away, right? They just went underground. So do you think that, you know, the people in these corporations seeking to profit regardless of national conflict or moral boundaries have suddenly vanished or no longer exist on the planet? We have to be more realistic than that and understand, again, that maybe incorporating the ideas of episode one through episode two linking episode three and hopefully throughout this series we'll be able to uncover the weight and the reason why I'm spending the time building this out like this. So we have a quote from Anthony C. Sutton's book Wall Street and the Rise of Hitler. Moreover, American assistance to Nazi war efforts extended into other areas. The two large tank producers in Hitler's Germany were Opel, a wholly owned subsidiary of General Motors, controlled by the J.P. Morgan firm, and the Ford AG subsidiary of the Ford Motor Company of Detroit. The Nazis granted tax-exempt status to Opel in 1936 to enable General Motors to expand its production facilities. General Motors obligingly reinvested the resulting profits into German industry. Henry Ford was decorated by the Nazis for his service to Nazism. Alco and Dow Chemical worked closely with the Nazis, with the Nazi industry, with numerous transfers of their domestic U.S. technology, Bendix Aviation, in which the J.P. Morgan-controlled General Motors firm had a major stock interest, supplied Siemens and Haskell AG in Germany with data on automatic pilots and aircraft instruments. In late 1940, in the unofficial war, Bendix Aviation supplied complete technical data to Robert Bosch for aircraft and diesel engine starters and received royalty payments in return. In brief, still reading from Anthony C. Sutton's Wall Street Rise of Hitler here, in brief, American companies associated with Morgan Rockefeller international investment bankers, not, it should be noted, the vast bulk of independent American industrialists, but, you know, the ones he's talking about there, the American companies associated with Morgan Rockefeller, so reading still from Anthony's book, they were not it should be noted, the vast bulk of independent American industrialists were intimately related to the growth of Nazi industry. It is important to note as we develop our story that General Motors, Ford, General Electric, DuPont, and the handful of U.S. companies intimately involved with the development of Nazis were, except for Ford Motor Company, controlled by Wall the Wall Street elite, the J.P. Morgan firm, the Rockefeller Chase Bank, and to a lesser extent, the Warburg Manhattan Bank. Still reading, he says, This book is not an indictment of all American industry and finance. It is an indictment of the apex, those firms controlled through the handful of financial houses, the Federal Reserve Bank System, the Bank for International Settlements, and their continuing international cooperative arrangements and cartels, which attempt to control the course of world political politics and economics. 
we have to recognize that that didn't just vanish after World War II, that this is coming from people still, you know, not definite people that are still alive, but their organizations and their philosophies are still continuing on now, more of an in, in an underground crypto-eugenic fashion. Among some of the items already discussed here, there's a few other things that we can toss out there as possible eugenics methods being deployed today. One of the more obvious and apparent, fluoride in the water, and we'll hear a clip from Dr. Dean Burke, and he had entered the the University of California at Davis at age 15, earned a PhD in biochemistry at UC Berkeley, and spent 34 years at the National Cancer Institute, and was the head of the NCI cytochemistry sector in 1938, and he retired in 1974 and remained active in opposing fluoride in the water, and you'll hear an upcoming clip from him where he says, this amounts to public murder on a grand scale. It is a public crime, it would be, to put fluoride in the drinking water of people. And he's also known for saying, in point of fact, fluoride causes more human cancer death and causes it faster than any other chemical. So water fluoridation is a form of eugenics being deployed on the population. Something else we have to consider is GMOs, and GMOs will likely be discussed a lot further in upcoming episodes on food control systems, and we'll also hear a clip later from Jeffrey M. Smith on GMOs to round out the end of this episode. Vaccines should also be thought of as a possible eugenics mechanism that the globalists could be using as a form of negative eugenics, and we'll hear multiple occurrences of Bill Gates discussing this and discussing vaccines as a form of population control, and Bill Gates is one of the foremost modern proponents of crypto-eugenic methods of population control, and he is one of the largest shareholders through his foundation, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, in Monsanto, um, who is the world's producer of genetically modified organisms or GMO food. And another thing would be pharmaceuticals found in the water supply as well, along with the fluoride. Um, we have to consider that as a possible eugenics agenda because of the huge increase in usages of pharmaceuticals also found in the schools on young children um, being pushed on the population very actively, and these are addictive. They can cause suicide in the individual. This is very common on these psychotropic SRI, SSRI type medications and the Adderalls, lithiums, and Ritalin drugs that they're pumping into the school systems. Also, pharmaceuticals just in general being abused, even though they're prescribed illegally, are typically abused and cause accidental deaths or could possibly potentially even just completely have been accidental death overdose and potentially used for mind control, obviously used to control emotion and control human behavior, so ultimately people control and pharmaceuticals as a form of eugenics 
and again mentioned earlier, withholding medical technology as a form of eugenics. So the last thing I'll mention with those items is geoengineering as eugenics and that to me seems like the most likely the most likely reason why they're carrying out the geoengineering on such a massive scale as we can see now but that will have to be a full episode in itself in later down the road and possibly some interviews as well and we have a quote here straight from the horse's mouth Bertrand Russell in 1953 who says scientific societies are as yet in their infancy it is to be expected that advances in psychology and physiology will give governments much more control over individual mentality than they have now and have even in totalitarian countries. Fitch laid it down that education should aim at destroying free will so that after pupils have left school they shall be incapable throughout the rest of their lives of thinking or acting otherwise than as their schoolmasters would have wished. Diet, injections, and injunctions will combine from a very early age to produce the sort of character and sort of beliefs that the authorities consider desirable, and any serious criticism of the powers that be will become psychologically impossible. So we really need to analyze these statements coming from these characters who are being followed by our modern creature and our modern control systems. Um, but rather than me ramble on, I think we should move on with this episode, and here's what we've heard and what we're going to hear coming up. We opened with The Atomic Age from J. Robert Oppenheimer, his quote, and then we heard a clip from The Horrors of Forced Sterilization in America, an early American eugenics propaganda film. Next, we heard a clip, and then sprinkled throughout the episode as well, we'll hear clips from Scientific Racism, the Eugenics of Social Darwinism, which is a BBC documentary. And then we heard a conscious conversation, a clip from the movie My Dinner with Andre. Then a small clip, Normally Conditioned American, from the 1962 film The Manjurian Candidate. And then, of course, the great Manly P. Hall and his audio, Turn Off the TV. And then we'll hear coming up a lecture from Dr. Phyllis Molyneux on fluoride, and then a clip from Alex Jones's documentary Endgame, which is one of the best documentaries on the topic we're discussing here. After that, we'll hear a small clip about the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, which was exposed, and that will be a small interesting audio clip. Following that, we'll have Michael Tesserion and a clip from his series, Origins and Oracles, which is fantastic and should be looked into. Then we'll hear about the story of Elaine Riddick, and her story is exposed, talked about not too long ago, in recent American history, someone who was forced sterilized. Then Robert Kennedy talks about the vaccine autism cover-up, and then we'll hear David Emery reading from They Thought They Were Free, and a small clip from David Icke 
um, on population reduction. Then the eye-opener life and death bioethics as crypto eugenics James Corbett report. And a small clip from Dr. Dean Burke where he discusses that fluoride causes cancer. And we discussed his credentials earlier that he wasn't just somebody saying that. Finally, to finish out the episode, we'll have Jeffrey M. Smith and the GMO threat. And that's the full-length clip there. And that being said, I'll leave it to the rest of this episode to finish up the tale. As you navigate down the river of information, remember that you're taking in the necessary information and making positive change in your own life. And we can all get a little bit closer to where we say we want to be by doing what's required to do in order to get there. And by listening to this, you're participating in exposing the creature of control. And I thank you for listening this far, and we'll see you again soon. Enjoy the rest of this episode. You are listening to The Creature of Control. Our next speaker is right from Massachusetts. Dr. Phyllis Mullenix started her career at the University of Kansas with a PhD in pharmacology with a specialty in neurotoxicology. She completed a postdoctorate at Johns Hopkins School of Public Health in Environmental Medicine. In 1977, she joined the Department of Psychiatry at Children's Hospital in Boston and joined the Department of Neuropathology with Harvard Medical School. From there, she moved to Forsyth Dental Research Institute and was the head of the Department of Toxicology for 11 years. In 1995, she published the groundbreaking study linking fluoride with damage to the central nervous system. Currently, Dr. Mullenix is a research associate at Children's Hospital Department of Psychiatry and lecturer in radiation oncology at Harvard Medical School. Please give a warm welcome to Dr. Phyllis Mullenix. I want you to know I was born and raised in Missouri, the show me state. I talk a little slower, and so I think I ought to have a little longer to talk because it takes me longer to get it out. <laughs> yes, I want to tell the story of how I was introduced to fluoride. I will tell you the truth. Fluoride never even entered my thoughts before 1982. I was at Children's Hospital. I, my specialty was I was to develop animal models to, screen, uh, to look at and develop technology that would screen for screen substances for having an adverse effect upon the brain and uh, behavior. In the process of doing that, um, I drew the attention of Dr. Jack Hine, who was the director of the Forsyth Dental Center in Boston. It's right next to the Museum of Fine Arts, if you're not familiar with it. It's an old institution that uh, used to provide free dental care for all the children of Boston. Dr. Hyde wanted me to come to Forsyth because he wanted me to, to apply the new technology that we were working on to dental products. And he was suspicious that many of the dental products were causing a problem for the brain and he wanted me to come and to develop the new computer system that we were uh, in the process of working on 
It was to be a brand new system that would totally uh, make screening for neurotoxicity an objective measure. Uh, I'm going to, if they can turn down the slides, I'm going to or turn down the lights so we can see the slides. I'm not trying to get you into the science, I'm just trying to get you to realize what was going on. We developed the first computer pattern recognition system where a computer actually did what the eyeball would do in terms of looking at uh, behaviors. This computer system, we, we got the first back system and it was totally dedicated to doing nothing but following the movements of animals and being able to pick out abnormal behavioral patterns. So I moved then to Forsyth, I agreed uh, to come and to uh, set the system up, and I also agreed that this system would be applied to fluoride as the first thing that we would study. When I moved to Forsyth, Dr. Jack Hine introduced me to what was known as the, the world's leading expert on fluoride chemistry and fluoride toxicology. That individual's name was Dr. Harold Hodge. Dr. Harold Hodge is one of the founding fathers of the Society of Toxicology. Dr. Hodge also was the chief pharmacologist on the Manhattan Project. And it was his responsibility to uh, look at the toxicology of fluoride, although I didn't know that at the time. Then um, uh, I, I worked on the computer system at, at Forsyth. We developed, we had our laboratory, we had our video cameras, we had the computers going. It took a lot of years. The system was successfully set up. Uh, you know, it was the first system, as I said, where human intervention in doing these tests was totally taken out. So it was an objective measure. And then we, um, I had a physicist that worked with me, Dr. William Kernan, who was the head physicist at the uh, Ames Laboratory. And um, in fact, he designed the programs to follow the movements of hydrogen particles through a bubble chamber. And he says, well, if we can follow hydrogen particles through a bubble chamber, we can follow rats through three-dimensional space. We took this system, we developed it, and we applied it to fluoride. Now, um, I must say that in what this computer, this is a digitized picture of what the computer sees. And so I'm just pointing this out because, as I say, this was a, a very unique system. And I was sought out by many different groups to apply this system to many different, neuro, many different substances that were suspected. And the one that we developed that was most successful was in um, the look at the neurotoxicity of the treatments for our childhood leukemia. And uh, our system was put into the uh, yearbook of oncology, and we were very successful. Then we applied it to fluoride, and uh, we found some very suspicious results. We published this paper in 1995. Uh, it's not very clear. I'm sorry, the, the, maybe the lights are a little too bright. Can we dim the lights a little? Anyway. We found some very suspicious results. We published this in a peer-reviewed journal in Neurotoxicology and Teratology. I reported the results to Dr. Jack Hine, the director of the institute. He got very excited. He says, we must fly to Washington and present this to the National Institute of Dental Research. He says, we also need to report it to certain industries, which I proceeded and I did. I submitted a grant to the National Institutes of Health in 1992 to look at this. I gave a seminar at my institution, for um, Forsyth, and I was <laughs> meted with, met with some reaction from the uh, 
uh, senior members of the staff that they were very concerned. They were afraid that their money from uh, the National Institute of Dental Research would be taken away if I published this information. Anyway, the paper came out. They, uh, it was, um, they Forsyth notified the National Institute of Dental Research uh, prior to it, and they asked me to do a television conference on this before my information came out. They wanted to see what we were saying. In 1994, I left Forsyth and chairman of, uh, of that department, or head of the toxicology department. Then um, what I found in that study were three basic conclusions. There was no question that behavior was vulnerable to fluoride. Whether you got a very short exposure, and this in animals, if, you, if, you're, if they're young, if it's prenatal, or if it's early postnatal, all you needed was two or three days exposure to this. And it caused a permanent change in behavior when the animals grew up. That's all the exposure. If you took all the, way, all the other exposures away and they got none other but that one exposure, that was it. It was enough to permanently change the behavior. Now, um, also in that study, we found that the effects varied with age. If you were prenatally exposed, it was hyperactivity was the problem. If you were ex exposed as adults or at weanlings, we called it the couch potato. The problem was is that they, uh, they, they were hypo hypoactive and very slow. Also, we found that the um, fluoride accumulated in the brain. And this is very different than what the literature had said before. Because the literature had shown before, um, but they didn't do it appropriately, they said that it does not get into the brain and it does not accumulate. And we know that that is wrong. And this is just to show you some levels, for example, of control and exposed female in the hippocampus of the brain. Uh, some of the areas are, are it's doubling and tripling in actual amount of fluoride in those regions of the brain. So we knew we were in trouble. The paper came out, and um, I started getting response from all over the world. And that's when I started learning that there's more to this fluoride story than just that it's good for your teeth. I, I got more information because I was upsetting people by saying this. And I learned that fluorine is a natural element. It is in, pra in a lot of different things. It's more common than chlorine and nitrogen, or as common as chlorine and nitrogen. And it's more common than carbon, even. And because it's so ubiquitous, that assures that you are going to be exposed to fluoride, whether it's in your drinking water, whether it's through the air, whether it's uh, uh, you know, via food or soil. You're still going to get exposures to fluoride. The other thing that was concerning was there are a lot of occupations out there that you are being exposed to fluoride to whether you know it or not. If you work with aluminum, if you work with magnesium, if you work with any petrochemical, if you are in coal production, if you work in a glass factory or a brick factory or a tile factory, all of these will assure that you are going to be exposed to fluoride. You absorb it through your skin, you can inhale it. And to your body, it doesn't matter where this fluoride is coming from, your drinking water or, what, or wherever it's coming from, to your body, it's the same thing. I found that fluoride is at the hazardous waste sites, the EPA's national priorities list. Yes, it's a pesticide, as mentioned before. And then I found that fluoride is used to process uranium and it is used to produce atomic energy. And so 
this really concerned me because I didn't realize, coming from a dental institution, I thought that fluoride was only coming from drinking water. I really didn't realize that when I drank a Coke, when I drank Snapple tea, when I drank grape juice, that I was really adding to my body burden of, of fluoride with all these others. So I thought this was important enough to submit another grant in 96. And the information, they were still a little scared about this, and they said, gee, there doesn't seem to be a link between the brain or bone problems. I don't see how this could be possible. And then in walked Cliff Honecker into my life, and he walked, and he says, he asked me two questions. I'd never met or heard from this before. He knocked on my door in this, this summer, as a matter of fact, in 1996, and he asked two questions. He asked me about my CNS work, and he asked me about my relationship to Harold Hodge. Remember, Hodge was one of the people in my department of toxicology I'd worked with, and he, would work, he was a chief pharmacologist on the Manhattan Project. This man had never said anything to me in all that time. He asked me lots of questions about what we were doing, but he never actually said what was going on. Cliff showed me some documents then from the Manhattan Project that had recently been declassified. I then got a publication from 1949 where this man had been there when they actually started working with the fluoride and did the original toxicology studies. And they described what happened to some of these people when they were accidentally overexposed to fluoride. And here is what he found. All the seriously injured individuals were unusually nervous, apprehensive for four to five days after the accident. One individual was definitely overstimulated for about three days, exaggerating all facial expressions and being unusually verbose and talkative. At times, he was almost incoherent. The other seriously injured patient, although normally quiet and placid, became very apprehensive with a similar tendency toward the exaggeration of statements. The opinion of all observers held that the mental reactions were more than could possibly be explained on a fear reaction basis. The second accident that they had, the mental status for the first five or six days following the accident was marked by general sluggishness, the couch potato syndrome, with transient periods of restlessness, irascibility, and nervous tension with occasional silliness and loss of contact. Does that sound like Dr. anybody you know? Hodge in 1965 wrote another book. This time, though, in that book, all he talked about were the effects of fluoride on bone and teeth. He did not talk about uh, anything about these CNS effects. But then Cliff showed me some documents from 1944. And in this memo, I just want to point out a couple of statements. This memo was marked top se er, secret. And no one knew this, but it, and it's dated April of 1944, and I can't hardly read it from here, but it says, it's to Stafford Warren, who was part of the um, uh, head of the project, and they talk about here that there is clinical evidence to suggest that C616, that's uranium hexafluoride, may have a rather marked central nervous system effect with mental confusion, drowsiness and lassitude as the conspicuous features. It seems most likely that the fluoride component, rather than the uranium, is the causative factor. They knew in 1944 that it was causing a problem. They go on to say here that it's causing a problem and we are worried about it and we want to do animal experimentation because 
these, um, we're, we're afraid that our workers are going to become confused and they're not going to be able to handle working with this stuff. They're going to be a danger to themselves and they're going to be a danger to others. The memo goes on. They set up a budget. They gave money to these people to do the studies in rats that I just did in 1996. They had the budget. It was approved. The Colonel in the Manhattan Project said, yes, go ahead and do it. This, this office approves that these, this experimental program can go forward. Not six months later, another memo comes in and it says, if you started those studies on the mental condition in rats, stop them. And if you haven't started them, don't start them at all. So they knew there was a problem, they stopped it back 50 years ago, and they never did the study, and the studies were never reintroduced into the documents. And you don't see that in the literature today, and that's why you don't see a lot of the dentist who knows the problems with the CNS. Now, going on, since then I've gone to other, liter other literature around the world, and I can tell you in, in a nutshell, you've mentioned the IQ problems, You've mentioned, I can tell you, that uh, there's a review that's recently written, as, as recent as 1994, that says the syndrome that you have if you're exposed looks a lot like the chronic fatigue syndrome. Now, I can go back to the 1950s where these people, uh, they talk about their memory loss, they talk about the problems with coordinating their thoughts. These are documented and they do exist, but you can't find them in the literature in the United States. I had to go outside. I had to wait until someone knocked on my door and showed me declassified documents that these problems were known about some time ago. Then I have to go on. Uh, I see I'm, I'm a little too slow, but one of the last documents I saw that just blew me away, and I said, if I do nothing else, I've got to get out so that the people do have the right to know this. They went out, they had one big accident or a lot of release of the fluoride. The chief pharmacologist, Harold Hodge, that I worked with, went out and he write, writes a memo about his visit to the site. And he says, there's no question it's hydrogen fluoride. There's no question that uh, the people are sick. There's no question that the fruit is poisoned. There's no question that the, the levels were so high that there had to be an agricultural embargo on the fruit, which was stopped. There was no question that people were being poisoned. And then he turns around and says, should we try and alleviate the fear of the public about fluoride by telling them it's good for their teeth? So the next time someone comes up and says to you that fluoride is good for your teeth, if I were you, I would just say no. Some of the new ideas about race in the high Victorian age drew their evidence from the world of the dead. Based on the study of corpses and skeletons, the burgeoning science of anatomy laid the foundations for a new scientific racism. In Britain, the most important race scientist was a now forgotten Edinburgh surgeon. Ruined by a body-snatching scandal in the 1820s, he had fled Britain in disgrace, 
but in the 1840s, Dr. Robert Knox resurfaced with the publication of a new book. Race is everything. Literature, science, art, in a word, civilization depends on it. For Robert Knox in that book, race is everything. It determined your character, it determined your position in civilization, it determined your destiny. Can the black races become civilized? I should say not. He saw racial conflict and extermination happening all around the world. It was natural for him to believe that racial types were bound to struggle and that the superior races would dominate the naturally inferior ones. The Saxon race will never tolerate them, never amalgamate, never be at peace. It is a war of extermination. One or other must fall. Robert Knox was not a lone voice. In America, a group led by the renowned craniologist Samuel George Morton had begun to collect the skulls of different races and compare them. Skulls were chosen to be measured because it was reckoned that the skull was the container of the most important part of the human body, the brain. The bigger the skull, the bigger the brain. The shape of the skull, the shape of the brain. The American School of Race Scientists concluded that the races, as measured through their skulls, were so different as to be separate species. Tasmanians, Africans, American Indians were not the lower races of men. They were perhaps not fully human at all. One writer compared the extermination of these races by white settlers as being like the melting of snow before the advancing rays of the sun. But the theory that was to have the most powerful impact upon race came not from the anatomists or the skull measurers, but from the work of one of the 19th century's greatest minds. The origin of species really threw a bombshell, first of all into science, it really invented the science of biology, and then into religion and into society. And what Darwin did in some ways was to give an alibi for being a judge. If evolution had changed the races and the species of the world, why hadn't it done the same to humans? Many believed that Darwin's laws had done just that. Natural selection, they claimed, neatly explained and justified the global expansion of the great British race. Life favors a hierarchy of specialists. And you find that throughout the plant and the animal world. There are bugs on top of bugs on top of bugs, each one surviving at another's expense, each one filling a niche that another can't occupy. People, Darwin said, are the same way. They are expansive organisms. In other words, Englishmen are just like other organisms. They are successful because they are good at expanding. Those who understood colonialism and human competition in terms of Darwin's theories became known as the social Darwinists. Men like the radical biologist Thomas Henry Huxley 
and the famous economist Herbert Spencer. And social Darwinism foresaw very different fates for the various races of mankind. Evolution was in operation. It was advancing the most recently evolved, the most successfully evolved, that is the Northern Europeans and the British. But evolution also suggested that there had to be losers in this great cosmic process. And the losers were those peoples who could not compete. And once put into competition with superior races, were doomed to disappear. And this was likely to happen to all the native peoples in North America, in the Pacific, and in Africa. Across the world, the crimes of imperialism now came to be taken as proof that the social Darwinists were right. In North America, centuries of disease and war had devastated the Native Americans. Whole nations had been all but annihilated. In parts of the Australian mainland, the peoples of the outback were, it seemed, going the same way as their cousins in Tasmania. And across Africa, the scramble for empire had brought the might of Europe to bear against innumerable peoples, killing literally millions. The social Darwinists predicted a future in which these races, like many animal species, would only be remembered as curios, stuffed exhibits in anthropological museums. The white man's burden and the Christian dream of benign imperialism were rendered obsolete. Old missionaries who still talked about the equality of humanity and talked about everyone descended from Adam and Eve and talked about that the truth, the only truth came from the Bible, were seen as being extraordinarily old-fashioned who simply had failed to come to terms with the great scientific thinking of the age. And these racial theories were not only applied in new colonies but also in the oldest parts of the empire. The elite have left a massive wave of destruction behind them as they cold-bloodedly experiment on civilian populations as if we are lab rats. A string of congressional investigations has uncovered more than 20,000 secret tests that were carried out against the American people between 1910 and 2000. One well-known eugenic study, the Tuskegee Syphilis Project, killed hundreds of blacks and spanned 40 years until whistleblowers exposed it in 1972. From 1943 until present, the British have tested lethal nerve gas on their own personnel, on land, air and sea. Many died instantly, still others died grueling deaths over several years. The federal government commissioned secret radiation experiments on thousands of non-consenting patients. Hundreds of hospitals in the U.S. injected healthy men, women, and children with uranium and plutonium at dosage levels ranging from non-therapeutic to lethal, killing many of the test subjects. 
pregnant wives of GIs were given vitamins by base doctors that actually consisted of highly radioactive uranium-239 and plutonium-241, resulting in violent miscarriages and the death of the mothers. Soldiers, sailors, and marines were used as guinea pigs in hundreds of atomic and hydrogen bomb tests. Patriotic Americans were radiated side by side with lab animals. Pilots were forced to repeatedly fly through mushroom clouds of DNA-destroying radiation. From 1951 to 1961, the U.S. Army paid Israel's health ministry 3 million lira to conduct radiation testing on Sephardic children that immigrated to Israel. The government-run public schools would tell the children that they were going to get a medical checkup and that they were receiving an x-ray. The Pentagon had already radiated more than 4,000 institutionalized children in the United States, many of which had died. More than 110,000 of the darker-skinned Jews were given 35,000 times the maximum dose of x-rays to the head repeatedly. Many of the children died within months. All of them lost their hair. Some still live today and endure excruciating health problems. The covert testing of chemical, biological, and radiological agents on unsuspecting populations continues worldwide today. From 1940 to 1979, the vast majority of the British population was sprayed by aircraft more than 2,000 times with deadly chemicals and microorganisms without ever being told. In 1968, the Pentagon tested a deadly bioweapon on New York subways place personnel in local hospitals to monitor the effects. Aggressive sterilization of men and women continued in many states until the mid-1980s. The United States and England are currently testing pesticides and highly toxic experimental drugs on tens of thousands of healthy foster children, many of which die as a result of the experiments. Prisons across the nation have forced inmates to participate in grisly experiments ranging from pesticide studies to having tablets of dioxin sewn into their backs. Gradually, by selective breeding, the congenital differences between rulers and ruled will increase until they become almost different species. A revolt of the plebs would become as unthinkable as an organized insurrection of sheep against the practice of eating mutton. Bertrand Russell H.G. Wells, Aldous Huxley, Bertrand Russell, and hundreds of other eugenicists constantly bragged about how the establishment believed themselves to be a separate, more advanced species than the common man. Top eugenicists were bold enough to admit that their real goal was not improving the heredity of the commoner, but to further dumb them down so that they could be more manageable. Nobel Prize winner Russell wrote at length 
about how vaccinations filled with mercury and other brain-damaging compounds would induce partial chemical lobotomies and develop a servile zombie population. Diet, injections, and injunctions will combine from a very early age to produce the sort of character and the sort of beliefs that the authorities consider desirable, and any serious criticism of the powers that be will become psychologically impossible. Bertrand Russell Over a hundred years ago, eugenicist social planners said that they'd use mind-altering drugs to control the population. By 2007, more than 20% of the U.S. population were on some type of prescription antidepressant. But in the case of foster children, a sector where the state has total control, at least two-thirds are forced to take a cocktail made up of, on average, seven psychotropic drugs. Chairman of the Texas Society of Psychiatric Physicians, Joe Burkett, testified before the State House Select Committee hearing on psychotropic drugs in foster care and shocked the public when he said that two-thirds of foster children in Texas had been placed on psychiatric drugs because they were very, very sick from a bad gene pool. A lot of these kids come from bad gene pools. They don't have stable parents making good decisions. Besides the gene pools, they've then been traumatized by abuse, neglect, and problems, and then they've been traumatized by separation, and all those things predisposed to mental illness. The Western world is now implementing eugenics pre-crime policies. Fetuses are now being pre-screened according to family histories of crime. From Portland, Oregon to London, England, Child Protective Services are enrolling newborn children into criminal databases at birth and forcing them to attend probation hearings at age two. The overlords of scientific dictatorship are ruthlessly prosecuting a war on our most defenseless. In December of 1974, the U.S. government made third world population reduction a central national security issue. The operation plan titled National Security Study Memorandum 200 was simply a regurgitation of the British Commission on Population created by King George VI of England in 1944 which openly stated that populous third world nations posed a threat to the international elite's monopoly of global power. The Kissinger-authored U.S. plan targeted 13 key countries where massive population reduction was called for. Kissinger recommended that IMF and World Bank loans be given on condition that nations initiate aggressive population control programs such as sterilization. Kissinger also recommended that food be used as a weapon and that instigating wars was also a helpful tool in reducing population. In 1972, the Nixon White House also implemented a eugenics policy which was directed by George Herbert Walker Bush, then United States Ambassador to the United Nations. Bush advised China on the formulation of their one-child policy and directed the federal government to forcibly sterilize more than 40% of Native American women on reservations. The Bilderberg-dominated Club of Rome advocated environmentalism as the best front to implement population reduction. Western populations would accept serfdom if it was packaged as saving the earth. industrialization of Africa, Asia, and Latin America could be blocked. Citizens would more willingly give up their national sovereignty 
if it were sold as a way to help the planet. The think tank also concocted the peak oil fraud as a way to create artificial scarcity. And the Club of Rome has been aggressively pushing a global carbon tax as a way to fund their planetary government. In the draft copy of the United Nations Global Biodiversity Assessment, it states very clearly that we must reduce the human population from what's current level of about six billion people down to about one billion people. In the 1970s, South Africa developed race-specific bioweapons to target blacks and Asians and then subsequently sold the technology to Israel in the mid-1980s. In September of 2000, the Project for a New American Century published a document in which Dick Cheney described race-specific bioweapons as politically useful tools. And somebody mentioned, well, why would they want to reduce the human population when that means less money for them? Most people have no idea. They're not after money. They have all the money they need. They're after power. That's their aphrodisiac. The overlords of the New World Order are now aggressively pushing for a worldwide one-child policy. The Chinese one-child policy was phased in gradually. In the 60s when it began, you only had to pay a tax penalty. Only later did they imprison you if you had more than one child. Now the exact same proposals to penalize couples who have more than one child are being made in the United States, England and Europe. In the push to reduce global warming, children, according to some, are the new culprits. A think tank in the UK says too many kids are what's making the planet worse, saying large families, anything over two children really, should be frowned upon as an environmental no-no, uh, akin to not reusing your plastic bags, driving one of those big gas-guzzling cars, uh, taking long trips overseas. The UK, in fact, has negative growth, I think Canada's does too, that still, families in our rich countries shouldn't have more than two kids. In 1998, Ted Turner pledged to give more than one billion to the United Nations to be spent in the implementation of population reduction policies planet-wide. In 1999, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation gave $2.2 billion to Planned Parenthood, the United Nations Population Fund, and other population reduction groups. By 2007, the Gates had given more than $30 billion, almost exclusively, to population control groups. The controlled corporate press cynically reported that the Gates were giving the money to help third world children. Bill and Melinda Gates were dethroned as the world's most generous philanthropists when their friend and fellow population reduction enthusiast, Warren Buffett, gave $37 billion to fund an army of population control groups. And I actually think the world will be much better when there's only 10 or 20% of us left. Dr. Eric Bianca. Prominent University of Texas biologist Dr. Eric Bianca, while receiving an award from the Texas Academy of Science, said the worldwide AIDS pandemic was, quote, no good, it's too slow, and went on to laud the virtues of Ebola because it would kill 90% of the world population quickly. When his statements erupted into a national controversy, 
His graduate students defended him, stating that Bianca was too conservative and that all humans should be killed. But most frightening was the fact that in a crowd of over 1,000 prominent scientists, local newspapers reported that 95% of those in attendance gave Bianca sustained standing ovations every time he extolled the virtues of mass-culling microbes and man's destruction. China was able to turn the corner and become the leading world superpower because they have a police state and they are able to force people to stop reproducing. Dr. Eric R. Pianka. The eugenics movement has now shaken off much of its Nazi baggage and is using people's legitimate concern about the environment as a cloak to conceal their real agenda. Everyone wants to breathe clean air and have good water. But the controllers of the environmental movement have done nothing but co-op people's concerns and parlay it into support for global policies that further destabilize the third world and create untold misery. Phony environmental and conservation groups are now the biggest private landowners in the world. They lobby government to take property away from local populations only to develop it themselves later. When the U.S. military dumps millions of gallons of nerve gas on the east coast of the U.S., they don't say a word. Thousands of companies are creating transgenetic cross-species hybrids, splicing plants, animals, and insects, and releasing the new organisms into the global biosphere, vandalizing the very genetic code of the planet. And large environmental organizations do nothing. The corporate elite of the planet intensified their push for a global taxation system with a year-long build-up to the live earth hysteria held on July 7th, 2007 on seven continents. World leaders announced that saving the earth was the new organizing principle for humanity and hailed it as the planet's new religion. They claimed that CO2, which plants breathe, was killing the earth and that we must reduce the number of children we have to curtail our carbon footprint. Countries across the world marked the day by passing new carbon tax schemes and raising taxes on gasoline, natural gas, and electricity. It is a scientific fact that the sun is the main driver of planetary climate and the measurements are clear. The sun is becoming hotter, brighter. It has been slowly increasing thermal output in the last hundred years, causing warming not just on Earth, but throughout the solar system. But the scientific facts and even the order of the planets didn't matter to one of the chief organizers of live Earth, David Mayer de Rothschild, heir to the British arm of the Rothschild fortune when we spoke to him. When I called Rothschild on the order of the planets, he just laughed, thinking the audience wouldn't get it. He continued to count on the population's ignorance and claimed that the global warming lobby has nothing to do with carbon taxes. I guess he hadn't spoken with his good personal friend, Al Gore. 
global warming, the time for debate is over. I think what you have to realize is that, that being environmentally sensitive and making money aren't mutually exclusive. There's a lot of money to be made in, 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 in addressing this issue. But you guys are gobbling up all the world's concern to just simply line your pockets and make kids read your book in schools and do all this. It's a business, just like you said, Rothschild. It's not, I'm, do you think I make any money out of this? It's the same thing. It's the same thing. Your great, great, great grand, your, your money changing ancestors did. They're in Germany, Red Shield, and I'm calling you out, Red Shield. We know it's a scam. A pollution-based tax system, principally CO2. We're causing it mainly, vast majority of it. The consequences are bad and will be catastrophic unless we act. Uh, the polar ice caps of Mars have, are receding at several miles a year, much faster than ours and that the moons of Saturn and Jupiter are melting. In fact, several of their moons were ice and are now liquid seas. Now, how are SUVs causing that, David Rothschild? That's because those planets are closer to the sun, my friend. <laughs> no, um, Jupiter yeah. and Saturn are not closer to the sun. Neither is Mars. Yes, I think you'll find, right, that the very simple matter, and what I wanted to say, and this is my final point, forget your taxation theory, because actually it's not taxation. Put a price on the carbon. A tax is the best way. Cap and trade can also do it. If there were a carbon-based tax, mm -hmm. would there be a need for a, a, an economy-wide cap and trade system? They are not either or. We can do both. I am in favor of both. The architects of the New World Order are in a race to complete the structure of world government so they can suppress the independent development of technologies that threaten their monopoly of power, while at the same time steering new developments in the direction the architects chart for humanity. The technocrats call their governing system the final revolution because in the past, empires were enforced militarily. Now enforcement is primarily psychological and economic, and society itself is a construct of the elite who operate outside the controlled paradigm and control the civilization within, just as a child maintains the environment of a fish tank. We are like lab rats living out our entire existence, never questioning the confines of the cage or the scientists who experiment on us. New World Order engineers have hijacked human destiny its controllers have closely studied human behavior for more than a hundred years and are now steering us with expert control using our primitive drives and desires as levers they have developed their mind control systems to the point of being able to control the average unconscious person like a car Eugenics dominated the 20th century. Its ruthless spirit has now metastasized into the fields of genetics, nanotech, and robotics. But that's not surprising. From their inception, all three disciplines have been dominated by eugenicists. The billionaire founder of Sun Microsystems, Bill Joy, courageously went public in 2000 to warn of a cancerous consensus among the technocratic elite that at best humanity would be completely enslaved by the year 2030, and at worst, mass extermination of everyone 
but the elite would take place. A who's who of the techno-elite are members of what is known as the transhumanist or post-humanist movement. Many of its adherents see only the beneficial aspects of technology's exponential rise, like bringing sight to the blind, sound to the deaf, and longer life for all. But what many of them don't know is that master eugenicist Julian Huxley founded transhumanism and that society's controllers openly admit that the new system is designed to progress into absolute tyranny. Leading transhumanist Ray Kurzweil boasts that technological advancements will allow those that can afford it to live forever, but admits that most won't be able to keep up with the new master race. The drive for world government is now all about who will control and have access to radical life extension systems. Biological evolution is too slow for the human species. Over the next few decades, it's going to be left in the dust. Transhumanists believe that they will attain the fountain of youth by merging with technology. Now it may be within their reach. Decades ago, transhumanists said that if you did not accept augmentation or enhancements, you would no longer be able to get jobs. And now it's happening today. The elite who occupy the commanding heights of digital reality are suicidal nihilists. Suicidal nihilists know that there is no longer any substantive purpose to their willing, but they would always prefer to go on willing than not to act at all. They can very happily ally themselves with a the notion of nuclear holocaust or perfect exterminism. Technology has become so powerful in its capacity for destruction that free humanity cannot afford to let psychopathic technocrats with delusions of grandeur repeat the mistakes of their forebears because it is highly probable that this time they may destroy everything including themselves in their mad rush for godhood in this film we have chronicled the overlords bloody orgy of experimentation which already claimed the lives of more than 150 million people in the 20th century. And now they are promising to deliver an invincible tyranny that will dwarf their past exploits. In the days of World War II, there were sovereign nations and armies to stand against Hitler's final solution. Once world government is in place, no one will be able to stop the New World Order's plans for global population reduction. For those immune to psychological programming, hundreds of FEMA camps have already been built throughout the United States. In their quest for population reduction, no method is off the table. These dark builders intend to release a string of man-made bioweapons plagues, each one worse than the last, while at the same time expanding the police state to enforce an orderly extermination of the population, all in the name of fighting invisible terrorists. And the Georgia Guidestones stand today as a cold testament to the elite's sacred mission. 
to have a two-class system where the underclass are forced to live as slaves in tiny enclosed cities. While the elite enjoy the land of the earth, evolve into superhumans with the aid of advanced implantable technologies, live eternal lives, and travel throughout the cosmos. This is the promise given to the inner members of the New World Order and the agenda of the Bilderberg Group. In July of 1972, the Washington Star newspaper broke the story about the controversial Tuskegee Institute syphilis experiment. For 40 years, from 1932 until 1972, the U.S. Public Health Service, in partnership with Tuskegee, secretly studied the effects of untreated syphilis in African-American men in Alabama. 600 black men 399 with syphilis and 201 without the disease were induced to participate in the experiment. Nearly all of them were poorly educated, impoverished sharecroppers. In exchange for participating, they were promised free medical exams, hot meals, and a burial stipend. The men with syphilis were not told they were infected and were not treated even after penicillin was discovered to be an effective cure for the disease in the 1940s. Over the course of the experiment, 128 participants died of syphilis or syphilis-related complications. In 1972, when the paper exposed the details, the experiment was still ongoing. It incited public outrage over the unethical treatment of the participants which led to the experiment's termination that November. The following year, the NAACP filed suit on behalf of the survivors. The federal government settled the lawsuit for $10 million. It also agreed to provide survivors and their infected family members with free medical services. Now, the Institute of Human Virology, we read that according to top pharmacologist Dr. Robert B. Strecker, MD, PhD, the leading scientist of the project, that AIDS virus was created at Fort Detrick, but was based on research first conducted at the Lebedev Institute near Moscow, which was founded by the world's leading virologist, Gervich. The number of those infected doubles every month. Over 23 million Americans are already affected. In the Strecker Memorandum, in the 30s and 40s, the Public Health Service openly experimented and monitored black men infected with syphilis in Tuskegee, Alabama. 
Even after Palestine was discovered, these men remained infected and were not treated. Hence, their wives and sons were likewise infected. These incidents are recorded in detail in the book Bad Blood by James Jones. Between 1959 and 1970, there were over 300 biological experiments conducted on U.S. citizens unbeknownst to them. The extent of the program is revealed in the book A Higher Form of Killing by Paxman and Harris. That's from Dr. Robert Strecker's The Strecker Memorandum. Now here it is on DVD. This doctor, Dr. Robert Strecker, conclusively proves that AIDS was vector-borne, that AIDS was a man-made designer disease to create havoc in the world, exactly according to the policies of Bertrand Russell and Aldous Huxley and his coterie. This is absolute compulsory viewing. The Strecker Memorandum by Dr. Robert Strecker. He was one of the first people to work on the AIDS virus and knows everything there is to know about it. In the final revolution, Aldous Huxley says, it seems to me perfectly in the cards that a euphoric drug far more efficient and less harmful than alcohol may be produced. And if this should be introduced into every bottle of Coca-Cola, then clearly, as I ventured to point out more than 25 years ago in Brave New World, this would become an incredibly powerful instrument in the hands of a dictator. What is becoming, I think, quite clear now is that dictatorships of the future probably will not be based on terror as the dictatorships of Hitler and Stalin. Terror is an extremely wasteful, stupid, and inefficient method of controlling people. In Brave New World, the distribution of this mysterious drug, which I call the Soma, was a plank in the political platform. A Dr. Wright refers to inoculation against smallpox in the British Isles as an ancient practice. And a citizen of Wales, aged 99 years old, states that inoculations had been known and used during his entire lifetime, but that she got smallpox through her inoculation. In Birmingham, England, from 1871 to 1874, there were 7,706 cases of smallpox. Out of these, 6,795 had been vaccinated against the disease. A select committee of the Privy Council convened to inquire into the Vaccination Act of 1867, as 97.5% of those vaccinated died of the disease. Now, Dr. Charles Crichton, in 1884, he is asked to write an article for the Encyclopedia Britannica on vaccination. After much research internationally, he concludes that vaccination constituted a gross superstition. In 1896, Italian professor Carlo Ruta states that vaccination is a worldwide delusion at an unscientific practice with consequences measured today with tears and sorrow without end. Joseph Lister introduced sanitation to the surgery and hospital, but was fiercely resisted by leading surgeons and doctors. The British Medical Association dedicated itself to attacking his name, reputation, and theories. In 1850, a British physician reads paper uh, detailing the microscopic examination of food products, revealing that all food products examined in Britain were adulterated with foreign substances, including chemicals. W.B. Clark from the New York Press in 1909 says, cancer was practically unknown until the cowpox vaccination began to be introduced. He says, I have seen 200 cases of cancer, and I never saw a case of cancer in an unvaccinated person. On the question of fluoride, 
1943, researchers from the U.S. Public Health Service examined the health of the residents of Bartlett, Texas, to see if the eight parts per million of fluoride in their drinking water was affecting their health. It was checked again in 1953. They find that the death rate in Bartlett was three times higher than a neighboring town which contained only 0.4 parts per million of the fluoride. Dr. James W. Wardner, in his book Unholy Alliances, says, the London Office of Strategic Affairs, that's the OSS from which the, developed the CIA, was run by David K. E. Bruce, an employee of Avril Harriman from the 1920s. Through Bruce and other connections, Avril Harriman dominated all American intelligence functions in wartime Britain. David Bruce was the husband of a Pittsburgh Mellon heiress. Alan Dulles had been the player for the Mellon's big international oil ventures, and eventually the law firm of Sullivan and Cromwell took over the management of the entire Mellon family fortune. It was through the Mellons that fluoride began to be promoted and dispensed into the America's water supply. Now, Ghislaine Langtak, in her book, The Medical Mafia, writes, At a CIA hearing, Dr. Gottlieb, a cancerologist, admitted having dispersed in 1960 a large quantity of viruses in the Congo River in Zaire to pollute and contaminate all the people who used the river as their source of water. Dr. Gottlieb was named to be the head of the National Cancer Institute. François Mitterrand, the president of France, says, the health of citizens is a commodity which is bought and sold. And mind control advocate Dr. Jose Delgado, in his book, Physical Control of the Mind Towards a Psycho-Civilized Society, simply puts it this way, man does not have the right to develop his own mind. Now, the annual death toll from synthetic prescription drugs both from the correctly prescribed and the incorrectly prescribed, amounts to about 231,000 deaths every year. To put this into perspective, this is the equivalent of a World Trade Center disaster every week for over a year and a half, or the crash of two fully loaded 747 aircraft every day of the year. Drug deaths caused by physicians, the third leading cause of death in the United States. It is far ahead of accidents, drunk driving, homicides, airline accidents, as well as all other disease. Jimmy Carter says, doctors collectively have done more to block adequate medical care for people of this country than any other single group. And Linus Pauling, the Nobel laureate, says, everyone should know that the war on cancer is largely a fraud. Now, it turns out that the term or word Medici, this is, refers to the 13th century Florentine patrician family who became one of the most powerful bankers as well as patrons of the arts and who provided many tyrannical popes. This word, the Medici, actually comes from that meaning medical doctors. So again, here we have the old age-old connection coming down from the Venetians, coming down from the Phoenicians, coming down from the ancient Sumerians. We have the families related, descended by blood from these ancient sources. And they're still up to their business, right down into modern times, massacring, creating rituals, treating people as if they're just cattle ready for sacrifice. Alice Bailey, an occultist and head of the Lucius Trust, she says, behind the division of humanity stand those enlightened ones 
whose right and privilege it is to watch over human evolution and to guide the destinies of men. This they do through the implanting of ideas in the minds of the world thinkers, so that these ideas in due time receive recognition and eventually become controlling factors in human life. They train the members of the new group of world servers in the task of changing these ideas into ideals. These in turn become the desired objectives of the thinkers and are then taught to the powerful middle class and worked up into world forms of governments or religion, thus forming the basis of the new world order. And Sidney West, the leader of the Fabian Society that later became the Labour Party of England, has this to say about the whole gig. To play those millions of minds, to watch them slowly respond to unseen stimulus, to guide their aspirations without their knowledge, all this, whether in high capacities or in humble, is a big and endless game of chess of ever extraordinary excitement. So-called philanthropist John D. Rockefeller, in his occasional letter number one of the General Educational Board, has this to say, In our dreams we have limitless resources, and people yield themselves with perfect docility to our molding hands. Unhampered by tradition, we work our own goodwill on a grateful and responsive rule of folk. The task we set before ourselves is a very beautiful one, to train these people as we find them to a perfectly ideal life just where they are. And Major John Rawling Reese of the Tavistock Institute of Human Relations, a major mind control syndicate in England, says this, the patient must remain unaware of the specific intentions and purposes of the doctor administrating the treatment. Building a society in which it is possible for any member of any social group to be treated without resort to legal means, and even if they do not desire such treatment. It should be clear by now, at this stage, that we have in fact an official history and we have an occult history, occult history of the world, occult history of the ancient world, and we also have occult history of America. Arthur S. Miller of George Washington University says, those who formally rule take their signals and commands not from the electorate as a body, but from a small group of men plus a few women. This group will be called the establishment. It exists even though that existence is stoutly denied. It is one of the secrets of the American social order. A second secret is the fact that the existence of the establishment, the ruling class, is not supposed to be discussed. Now, in the American Oath of Allegiance, we hear reference to protecting America from enemies, enemies both foreign and domestic, which implies, does it not, that there can be domestic enemies? Well, we can be sure that there are plenty of domestic enemies. Let's take a look and find out who they are. One of the most powerful of all the secret societies, given the agenda and operating in the world, is known by the name of the Illuminati. There's terms that they use, these secret societies, and then there's terms that their historians and critics also use, terms that they use within the lodges, and terms and names that people on the outside know. But the Illuminati is a very powerful organization. On the left is a picture of its creator, Adam Weishaupt. And Adam Weishaupt, after his passing on, 
The mantle went to the Italian revolutionary Giuseppe Mazzini, and Giuseppe Mazzini passed it on to the American Albert Pike, whose picture is on the right there. Albert Pike is the creator of the Scottish Rite Freemasonic system, or at least the bringer to America of the Scottish Rite Freemasonic system. Now, Adam Weishaupt's symbol, the original symbol of the Illuminati, was the pyramid with the eye at the top, and the term New World Order, or Novus Ordo Soclorum, around the bottom of the pyramid. That was the symbol that was found on the documents of the Illuminati and is now on the American $1 bill. The Illuminati was officially founded on May 1st, 1776, and America's official birthday is July 4th, 1776. Interestingly, Adolf Hitler's second book was called The New World Order. Now, this term, New World Order, is found at the bottom of the pyramid. It is another secret society slogan. It is not a political slogan. Adolf Hitler's first book was Mein Kampf, and the second one was The World Order or The New World Order. Now, Masons work in very ingenious ways in order to conceal their identity. If you take the symbol of the pyramid and draw around it, take a ruler and draw around it, a six-pointed star or hexagram or star of David, which is easy to do because the pyramid is already the upward-pointing triangle, you will find that at the vertices, at the apexes of the, the uh, Star of David, that's at the six points, it spells out the word M-A-S-O-N, that's Mason. And of course it shows a pyramid, which Masons build. George Washington is seen here standing in the Masonic Hall with the Masonic G above his head, and he's wearing the Masonic apron. So George Washington and many other elites and uh, presidents and so forth are members of these secret fraternities. Everyone knows about the Lincoln Memorial, but travelers and tourists are not as aware that around the corner from that is a very strange, to say the least, image of uh, George Washington, one of the founding fathers. He's seen here naked to the waist, uh, his arms in this uh, mysterious pose. Of course, it's mysterious to tourists. It's not mysterious to members of secret societies because they would recognize this pose. It is an occult symbol. Here is the god worshipped by the Knights Templars, Baphomet. Open any book on the occult and you'll usually see this symbol of the deity stripped to the waist with the hands in that pose. Baphomet is the god of the Freemasons and of the Rosicrucians. Here's an image of uh, Baphomet with the rose cross and the serpent on the globe being worshipped by the members of the fraternity. And in the book of Acts, we have a reference to uh, Satan. I am the offspring of the serpent nature and a corrupter's son. I am the son of he who sits upon the throne and has dominion over the creation beneath the heavens. So the serpents have dominion over the heavens and over the earth. Here is the original symbol that was meant to be on the dollar bill before they came up with the eagle. It was actually a triangle surrounded by serpents. Amaraka, America, as we saw earlier, literally the land of the serpents. They probably thought that would be too obvious and settled for um, other symbols instead, like the eagle. Here is the first U.S. flag, which shows the stars, again, Sirius, and the all-seeing eye radiating outward. So 
So the eye, the Freemasonic symbols of the stars and the all-seeing eye and the pyramidical shape were very much in the minds of the original founding fathers. Now the number 13 appears on the dollar bill quite a lot. There's 13 uh, levels of the pyramid. And the 13, which appears on the dollar bill, refers directly to the serpent. In the book of Revelations, it's chapter 13 that the dragon and his destructive power are introduced. But that destructive power involves the use of money. In Revelation 13, it says, he also forced everyone small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or upon his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now the Declaration of Independence was signed by 56 men, over 50 of whom were Masons, some Grand Masters. Their original meeting place was none other than the Green Dragon Tavern in Boston which Daniel Webster said was the headquarters of the American Revolution. So the whole of the American Revolution starts in a tavern which bears the name the Green Dragon. We wonder if that Green Dragon uh, was swallowing a human being. Now all cults, all fraternities, all churches, all denominations have their symbols. We know the symbols and we know that what we're looking at, whether it's a church, a synagogue, a mosque, whether it's a policeman, or whether it's a fireman, or whether it's a nurse. We know things by their symbols. So fascism, what are the symbols of fascism? One might think it's the swastika. Actually, it is not. The symbols of international fascism are much older than that. And the key symbol, the cardinal symbol of the fascist movements of the world, is a bundle of rods with a hatchet in the middle of them. This is called the fasce, or the fasces. It's an old Roman symbol, but it even predates the Romans. Where do we find it? On the back of the Congress room. The Freemasonic monopoly of government positions continued for at least the first hundred years of United States history. According to a 1924 census, even in that year, the Senate had a membership which was 60% Freemason. But what worries me more is why, of all the symbols that you could possibly choose, the symbols for international fascism are there in the Senate room at the back. Now, James W. Wardner, in his book on Holy Alliances, says, Our first president was a Mason, sworn into office by the Grand Master of New York on a Bible taken from a Masonic altar, that of St. John's Lodge No. 1. The Bible used in the ceremony was brought there by John Morton, Marshal of the Day from St. John's Lodge, of which he was the worshipful master. Thus was laid the cornerstone of our country and forever of our government. This same Bible used for Washington's inauguration, was used to swear in Masonic presidents Warren Harding in 1921 and Dwight Eisenhower in 1953. And what the good doctor fails to tell you is that when George Bush, in more recent times, asked for his Bible, he specifically asked for three Bibles, the Masonic Three, and laid his hand on three Bibles. And that is another known Masonic symbol. Well, if you got allegiances, you certainly have. George Washington, here is another statue of George Washington. And the caption under the bust, under the name, says, Freemason and First President. Now, I don't know about you. In fact, I'm not even an American citizen. I'm from Ireland. But yet I would take offense to that statement. Because what does it say? Let's read it together. 
it says George Washington, Freemason and first president. Now, maybe it's just me, but perhaps that should be the other way around. But no, these chaps have allegiances. And you see, that's the problem. That's the conundrum with domestic enemies. If you've got allegiances behind the veil, then what good are your promises and your allegiances in the public domain? If you have your fingers crossed behind your back, so to speak, what good are your promises? Well, from their own works. Here's a little book uh, that Freemasons use. This is just one of their little uh, manifesto books that they're all given. It's called The Duncan's Ritual. The Duncan's Ritual of Freemasonry. It's given to uh, neophytes so that they can learn about their rituals. And it's uh, full of interesting pictures to show them what to do when they're in the lodge. And in books just like this one, in the Duncan's Ritual, you find um, captions like this. You find instructions. And you find oaths. I will aid and assist a companion royal archmason when engaged in any difficulty and espouse his cause, whether it be right or wrong. A companion royal archmason's secrets shall remain as secure and inviolable in my breast as in his own. Murder and treason not accepted. Here at the G7 summit, you've got the whole picture in one. You've got the Illuminati pyramid in the center with its spokes radiating out. And who are the gang of criminals sitting around it? We've got Francis Mitterrand, we've got Bill Clinton of America and Tony Blair and um, other minions of the Atlantean warlocks. And the G, the G7, the G8. The G is the famous Masonic G, seen on every Masonic lodge. And what is a summit? A summit meeting, a peak meeting. We're meeting on the floor of the house. These are Masonic terms. Pick up a book on it and find out. In my book and also in the um, presentation, Weapons of Mass Deception Behind the New World Order, we go very much into this. It's part of the Origins and Oracles series. We show the actual connections between the Bush dynasty and the fraternities of Freemasonry and the Illuminati. Government officials conspiring on a project so horrible it is hard to believe it happened in our country and not that long ago. We have a story here tonight about cruelty in the name of science and about the government in effect trying to play God. But it's also about the strength and resilience of the human spirit and about a remarkable woman named Elaine Riddick. Dr. Nancy Snyderman takes us tonight to North Carolina to investigate a state of shame. The serene charm of Windfall, North Carolina. A sleepy town where the Perquimans River empties into the Albemarle Sound. But buried in the stillness of this place, it seems time has forgotten a secret shame. It was sort of a hush-hush type of thing. And the records and files were all hidden away down in a basement locked under a key. Until this past summer... When the ugly truth about what happened here and in towns all across North Carolina could be hidden no more. If there's anyone in this room that's too embarrassed to tell your story, don't be. Tell it. It needs to be told and you need to tell it all. There were a lot of stories that shocked those in the room that day. Stories of shame, confusion, 
grief. But one story, one single story, seemed to rise above the rest. I didn't want nobody looking at me because everybody knew what happened to me. That's how I felt inside. My heart bleeds every single day. I'm crushed. They cut me open like I was a hog. Elaine Riddick's story began in Windfall, among the cotton fields that rose up to meet the tiny two-bedroom house she shared with her grandmother, affectionately known as Miss Peaches. When you come back here, is it nostalgic? Is it bittersweet? Does it bring up moments of anger? All of the above. Sometimes I can come here and I am in, you know, I can look around me and I can take, find beauty in the ugliness, the ugly things that happened to me. It was 1967. Elaine's mother was in prison. Her father had abandoned her and five of her siblings were in an orphanage. Every adult she knew had betrayed her, with the exception of one, her grandmother. She just paid special attention to me. And she loved me. And she just gave me something that I needed. Sorry. But life was about to get worse for the poor, hungry little girl Miss Peaches tried to protect. As I was walking home, I took the long road, and the next thing I know, I was drugged and I was attacked. And you were raped? And I was raped. And my life was threatened that if I ever told anyone that he was going to kill me. And you were 13? I was 13. That brutal rape resulted in a pregnancy. Nearly nine months to the day of the assault, she went into labor. We got to the hospital, and they put me in a room, and that's all I remember. That's all I remember. When I woke up, I woke up with bandages on my stomach. Meaning what? At that time, I didn't know what it meant. What she didn't know was that the baby boy she gave birth to that day would be her last. No one told me. I never even knew. She had been sterilized, targeted by a state board that ordered that this kind of surgery be performed on thousands of North Carolinians from 1929 all the way to 1974. 7,600 men, women, and children, determined by social workers to be feeble-minded or promiscuous, were sterilized, usually without their consent, and it was perfectly legal. Little boys, they would castrate them. Little girls, they would go inside them and take out their organs. State Representative Larry Womble. Why would they want to do that to a young girl? Why did they? Well, they had several reasons they thought were valid at that time. Their reasons were based on a scientific theory called eugenics, which became popular in the 1920s. Eugenicists believed that poverty, promiscuity, and alcoholism were inherited traits. It was a simple theory with a radical solution. Sterilize those the state would have to take care of and improve society's gene pool. Some of America's wealthiest citizens of the time were eugenicists. Dr. Clarence Gamble of the Procter & Gamble Fortune and James Haynes of the Hosiery Company founded the Human Betterment League, which produced brochures like these, stoking fears of, quote, morons mixing with the general population. Representative, when you look back, was this a well-intentioned idea with the best science at the time that then just went awry? I don't know if that was the best intention to weed out 
negative things in our society. You're playing God over a whole group of people's lives. And I don't think we're supposed to play God like that. 31 states had legal eugenics programs, and by the late 1960s, tens of thousands of Americans had been sterilized. It began as a way to control welfare spending on poor white women and men. But over time, North Carolina shifted focus, targeting more women and more blacks than whites. It was a monetary, economic thing. Get them off of welfare so the state would not have to pay for their children. That's fine, but you don't do that by doing this kind of thing. Some people have even expressed to me that it borders on genocide. A third of sterilizations were ordered on girls under the age of 18, some as young as nine years old. What in the world will this lady do with one yeah. child? Yeah. I think he's sterilizing the entire caseload. The voices of social workers involved with eugenic sterilization. You're hearing them broadcast for the first time, some of them explaining the decision to sterilize in these recordings made in 1997 by Rutgers professor Johanna Schoon. What chance does another child have in this family? And I think a lot of motivation for workers probably came from that. Over a period of a year or two years, he got all of the women sterilized. I think that was perhaps a little excessive. In 1968, Americans were rebelling, protesting the Vietnam War, marching for civil rights. And while most states had abandoned their eugenics programs by then, the sterilization of poor Americans was still happening in North Carolina, and no one seemed to notice. So it was for Elaine Riddick that a signature on a dotted line sealed her fate. During the cesarean birth of her only son, her fallopian tubes were cut, and tied off. There is a document in your file that says regarding the sterilization, grandmother consents and the procedure has been explained to Elaine. Well, how can you take a 13-year-old kid and tell them this is what you're going to do to them? The terminology did not register. How can you explain to a 13-year-old kid that you're going to sterilize them? They took something so dearly from me, something that was God-given. Trauma like this would cripple most of us, but in a moment when we continue this story after the break, we see her climb back and what she did for her only son. Again, our story continues right after this. Welcome back as we now get back to our story. For decades, North Carolina sterilized people it deemed unfit, and it did so largely in secret. And now victims like Elaine Riddick are demanding answers from the government. Dr. Nancy Snyderman continues with Elaine's fight to rebuild her life and the state of shame that existed back then in North Carolina. On the fourth floor of a government building in downtown Raleigh, North Carolina, Thousands upon thousands of records few have ever seen. These are the eugenics files? Yes, and they're confidential. They're records that are not open to the general public. State archivist Dick Langford is the keeper of the files that hold the secrets of one of the most controversial practices of modern history, the mass sterilization of Americans against their will. When you've looked at them, what was your initial response? I look at them with a heavy heart because I realize these records, as patient records, have impact on people's lives. 
When you look at these records, you realize they're from not that long ago, 1950s, 1960s, and they represent all kinds of people. Take this one, for instance, a teenager who was sterilized because she was deemed promiscuous at the age of eight. And here's one, a 16-year-old incest victim. Social workers got consent for her sterilization from the father who raped her. And then there are the records of Elaine Riddick, sterilized after being raped at age 13. Social workers had declared her promiscuous, mentally retarded, unfit to procreate. But Elaine had something to prove. I ended up going to college. I took the entrance exam. I passed. I got in. And she graduated with an associate's degree from a technical college in 1982. Is some of this you saying to them by your actions, you guys were so wrong? Yes, definitely. Definitely. You know, I'm worthy. I'm not that little nappy head, dirty clothes, uh, hungry little girl anymore. I don't know where I would be if I listened to the state of North Carolina. Her proudest achievement has been her son, born 43 years ago and under unimaginable circumstances. Hey, Ma. Hi. Good to see you. Good to see you. Hi. Hi, I'm Nancy. Hi. How are you, Nancy? Nice to meet you. You're Tony. Thank you. Yes, Tony. You're a strapping guy. Thank you. <laughs> Today, Tony Riddick is a successful entrepreneur. You must be unbelievably proud of your mother. Oh, absolutely. I am. This is my buddy, my friend, my mother, everything, my sister. I'm proud of her because she never stopped fighting. You know, she continues to fight. And I think that's very important. What do you want? What do I want? Uh, well, what do I want? I would like for the state of North Carolina to write what they wrong with me. At one point, I sued the state of North Carolina for a million dollars, and that's been over 30-some years ago. And what did you expect when you filed that suit for a million dollars? I expected for them to give me a million dollars. She got nothing. She lost her case against the state because a jury decided no laws were broken. She appealed it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which declined to hear her argument. I was uh, embarrassed and I was surprised. All she and the other 7,600 victims have is an apology, emailed to the Winston-Salem Journal from then-Governor Mike Easley in 2002. But after mounting pressure from reporters, the state decided to do more and convened a task force in 2003. Nothing resulted. Then another task force came and went. We're the United States, for God's sakes. This was so wrong. Which brings us back to that day last summer when victims and their families had their say in front of another government task force assigned to determine how they should be compensated. What do you think I'm worth? What do you think I'm worth? It doesn't matter what you think I'm worth. It's what I think I'm worth. Priceless. Yes, ma'am. There's nothing that the state of North Carolina can do to justify what they did to me. What they did to these other victims. They told me to sign papers. I didn't sign no papers. I ain't never signed the papers. That was not my signature on these papers. North Carolina is the only state to consider compensation in the range of twenty to $50,000. But Tony Riddick, standing up for his mother and the other victims, said that's too little, too late. And my mother's been sitting here suffering for 43 years and nothing has been done. This is sinister. 
I'm so afraid that they're going to try to wait till all these people die. And that's a shame. That's a mark. It's an ugly chapter in North Carolina's book. We must step up to the plate and we must realize, take responsibility. There is nobody in North Carolina who is waiting for anybody to die again. Beth Perdue is North Carolina's governor. To stand up and say, I want this solved on my watch. I want there to be completion. Is there a plan to help these people? Our plan is, is very uh, thoughtful, I believe. We have gone through the process of, of ha having the hearings. You have to have people who self-report. I can't... Uh, Why? But, I mean, you have the records. I, Why not because, proactively go out and find these people? Because even if you go out and proactively find them, there are lots of people, just like in other medical cases, who don't want their data shared. They even want to if know it's money? Nancy, from my perspective, as a woman and as the governor of this state, this is not about the money. There isn't enough money in the world to pay these people for what has been done to them. As the Riddicks await the state's decision, they focus on the part of the family legacy that really matters. There's something to be said about young men who are raised by strong women. Yes, ma'am. I got an, uh, my, my cup overfloweth. <laughs> <laughs> Go! <laughs> Every day they appreciate life's simple gifts, finding joy in Tony Jr., who has yet to understand his grandmother's place in a terrible chapter of American history. He gives me the love. So with that, I can do anything in the world that I want to do. And I can be anybody I want to be. I'm sitting here thinking, these aren't records you unearthed in a parchment book with right. sketchy details from the past. We just heard audio recordings of something saying someone's... It's as heart-wrenching as it gets, autism and children. Six out of every thousand kids get it, and nobody knows exactly why. But my next guest says... He's got part of the blame that he, that, that he thinks needs to fall on government, and it has to do with a drug called Thimerosal. Robert F. Kennedy, Jr., is a senior attorney uh, for the National Resources Defense Council. He's author of Deadly Immunity in the current issue of Rolling Stone. It's an investigation of the possible connection between Thimerosal and autism in young kids. Hey, Bobby, thanks a lot. And, of course, you also have thanks, Joe. a great new book. Uh, tell us briefly about that. First of all, let me say that... The the um, deadly immunity piece on thimerosal is also running on salon.com simultaneously. The two magazines ran okay. at the same time. Um, my new book is St. Francis of Assisi, A Life of Joy. It's a children's book. Um, I grew up reading books about the saints, but I couldn't find one that would hold my computer-age children's attention. Uh, and so I tried to write a book that uh, had the kind of action and you know engaging story that would also teach them the values and it's done very very well and I'm very happy with it. Well we want to get you, you back to talk about that but let's talk tonight about the Marisol. Um, there are a lot of people out there when I was practicing law in fact I need to say this we actually practice in the same law firm no lawsuits uh, uh, regarding the Marisol so we can get that off uh, the record but still there are a lot of people, a lot of Americans, very concerned about the impact of this drug, which is found in vaccines, and how it causes autism. Talk That's about right. that. It's a, thimerosal is a preservative that was put in vaccines back in the 1930s. Almost immediately after it was put in, autism cases began to appear. Autism had never been known before. It was unknown to science. Then the vaccines were increased in 1989 by the CDC and by a couple of other government agencies. Okay, let me stop you there. That's an important date, and I'll tell you why. My, my son, born in 1991, 
uh, has a, a slight form of autism called Asperger's. But it seemed, and again, when I was practicing law, and also when I was in Congress, parents would constantly come to me, and they'd bring me videotapes of their children, and they were all around the age of my son That's or exactly. younger. The so generation, something happened in 1989. Exactly. The generation, what happened was the vaccine schedule was increased. We went up from receiving about 10 vaccines in our generation to these kids receive 24 vaccines. And they all had this thimerosal in them, this mercury, and nobody bothered to do an analysis of what the cumulative impact of all that mercury was doing to kids. As it turns out, we are injecting our children with 400 times the amount of mercury that FDA or EPA consider safe. A, a child on his first day that he's born um, is injected with a hepatitis B shot. The, uh, under EPA guidelines, he would be, have, to, have to be 275 pounds to safely absorb that shot. And, and, and yet we're just constantly pumping our kids and, with these vaccines. Where's right, the and what happened, what happened was that um, in 1988, one in every 2,500 American children had autism. Today, one in every 166 children have autism, and plus one in six children have other kinds of learning disorders, uh, other kinds of neurological disorders, speech delay, language disorders, ADD, hyperactivity, that all seem to be connected, that are all connected, the science shows are all connected to uh, autism. You know, Bobby, uh, what we've always found, you and I could, could debate a thousand different issues, whether it's Terry Schiavo or the environment, I think would agree on the environment. Um, but in this case, you've got the federal government coming and saying, well, there's no really, there's no good science. And of course, in politics, science always gets diluted. Why hasn't the federal government stepped up and, well, and, is... and worked more? Because listen, Bobby, I can't prove it tonight. You can't prove it. But intuitively, you look at the spike, you look at what happened with the Marisol, there is no doubt in my mind, maybe it's two years from now, maybe it's five years from now, maybe it's ten years from now, we're going to find out that the Marisol causes, in my opinion, autism. You know what? The science is out there today for anybody who bothers to read it. And I, I have read it actually on my website this week, robertfkennedyjr.com. I'm publishing an article that goes through all of the science. Um, but the science is clear. And what happens is I read the science at first, and there's literally hundreds and hundreds of studies that connect thimerosal to, you know, to these disastrous neurological disorders. Then I went, I talked to the scientists, then I went and I talked to the federal bureaucrats who are defending thimerosal, and I said, what are you relying on? And I looked at the science they're relying on, and I can tell you, Joe, it is so weak. And you and I have seen, you know, in legal practice, when junk science, and we know, you know, what these phony scientists are who create this stuff. It happens in big tobacco. Right. Tobacco. It happens in and big this, oil. And this it's is, happening in global warming. And, and now it's happening in a way that's impacting is, our kids' lives. This is classic tobacco science. It is junk science. And I was looking at these reports and saying, this is the best. This is what you're relying on. They know it's fraudulent. Okay. And now we have the transcripts. Expl explain it to me, Bobby, okay? I mean, explain it to me. If that's the case... Okay, you, you and I both know about politics, obviously. Politicians like to get reelected. Why are they sitting back and if, if, if our children are being poisoned, if the science is there, why are they sitting back and letting our children uh, be poisoned? Because the, 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 the same regulatory bureaucrats that green-lighted uh, Sintmarisol originally are now trying to cover their tracks. It's a CYA and, operation. Right, and they're working with the pharmaceutical industry, and we now have the transcripts of this secret meeting that they did in Simpsonwood, Georgia, in, two, in the year 2000, 
And it's the most horrifying thing that you can read, Joe. There are scientists there from the government who are saying, who are reading the reports and saying, we, this is undeniable. There is no, there is no, um, there's no way we can ever deny this. I'm not going to give this to my children, but now let's hide this from the American people. And it's, you know, it is that clear. And this is what I write about. It's this, this language that I, you know, that I write about in the Rolling Stone piece and the Salon piece that, you know, is so shocking where we have the guys who are supposed to be protecting Americans' health who are actually conspiring to keep this stuff in the vaccines. You know, and I can't say what lawsuit we were both involved in. I don't want to say it, but it reminds me of a lawsuit we were involved in a couple of years ago regarding water quality where, you know, the people that polluted in our community and then left our community would have never drank the water that our children grew up drinking. And it's, it's a disaster. It's a disgrace. So, uh, hey, Bobby, thanks for being here tonight. I, I want you to, if you can come back, we need to talk more about this. And also I want to talk about, and I'm going to hold up the book now. We actually lured Bobby in to say that we were going to talk to him about this book. Uh, but actually, he said he wanted to talk about this instead. Um, I appreciate you being here, Bobby, as always, and uh, let's get you back. Thanks a lot, Joe. And let's get you running for a public office. I will defend your honor whenever any Republican says anything nasty. Well, that counts for a lot. Thanks a lot, Joe. <laughs> yeah, that in a quarter, right? Get you a cup, a cup of coffee. We'll be right back in a second in Scarborough Country. Because the subject material of One Step Beyond is fascism, and the focus of the program is fascism, international fascism, and the U.S. national security establishment, and because it is my considered opinion at this stage of the game that we are going down the very same road that Italy and Germany went down. In fact, that's been my considered opinion for about 25 years. Uh, I've been saying that on the air for 15 years plus. When I began saying this, unfortunately, an awful lot of people looked at me like I had a penis growing out of my head. They did not want to hear about it. That was their reaction. I have a lot of people now that have hung in there over the years who say, you know, 10 years ago I listened to you and I thought you were nuts. Now I see what it is that you were talking about. Well, uh, it is to be hoped, I guess the, the saying better late than never applies in that context. It is to be hoped that enough people can get busy enough people will become active, enough people will wake up to prevent a catastrophe. This is something that I read on the air periodically to allow people the opportunity to measure the extent of the society's descent into fascism. This is something that is a description by the par on the part of a college professor of what it was like to live during the rise of Hitler. What was it like subjectively, or what it was like subjectively, I should say, to live under the rise of Adolf Hitler? And I read this periodically so that people in the listening audience can effectively gauge the extent to which their lives, their daily lives in the United States in the late 20th century, have become subjectively like the lives of the people who lived under the rise of fascism in Germany because the same bloody goddamn thing is happening here in the United States right now. If people in uh, Weimar Germany and in the early part of the early years of the Hitler regime had had a resource like this program, perhaps uh, the tragedies of Hitler's Germany might have been averted, but unfortunately they did not. 
The book from which I'm about to read is entitled They Thought They Were Free, subtitled The Germans 1933 through 45. This book was authored by Milton Mayer, last name M-A-Y-E-R. It's published in soft cover by the University of Chicago Press and copyrighted 1955. It is, as I said, a series of interviews with people who had lived during the rise of Hitler. Some of them were supportive of Hitler. Some of them were opposed to Hitler. Some of them were initially opposed to Hitler and then it became co-opted. And in a, in a chapter, uh, appropriately and ironically enough, chapter 13, uh, a title, a chapter entitled, But Then It Was Too Late, a college professor who was opposed to Adolf Hitler from the beginning, but who eventually went along with the program, who eventually became comfortable, who eventually became assimilated into the growing Nazi culture and Nazi society, relates his experiences, his subjective experience, of what it was like to view the rise of Hitler. And I think that many members of the listening audience will recognize parts of themselves, parts of the society they live in, parts of the society that they are about to be living in as they listen to this chilling account. In this chapter, again, chapter 13, entitled, But Then It Was Too Late, Milton Mayer interviews this college professor. And uh, the chapter begins, quote, What no one seemed to notice, said a colleague of mine, a philologist, again quoting, was the ever-widening gap after 1933 between the government and the people. Just think how very wide this gap was to begin with here in Germany, and it became always wider. You know, it doesn't make people close to their government to be told that this is a people's government, a true democracy, or to be enrolled in civilian defense, or even to vote. All this has little, really nothing to do with knowing one is governing. What happened here was the gradual habituation of the people, little by little, to being governed by surprise, to receiving decisions deliberated in secret, to believing that the situation was so complicated that the government had to act on information which the people could not understand or so dangerous that even if the people could understand it, it could not be released because of national security. Let me pause for just a minute. How many things have you heard explained by the U.S. government as uh, necessarily being kept secret because of, quote, national security, unquote? Well, the society being described here is not the America of Richard Nixon, or is it? It's not the America of Ronald Reagan and George Bush, or is it? This is Germany under Hitler, wasn't it? One more time. What happened here was the gradual habituation of the people, little by little, to being governed by surprise, to receiving decisions deliberated in secret, to believing that the situation was so complicated that the government had to act on information which the people could not understand, or so dangerous that even if the people could understand it, it could not be released because of national security. And their sense of identification with Hitler, their trust in him, made it easier to widen this gap and reassure those who would otherwise have worried about it. Interrupting again, think about Ronald Reagan. Think about uh, Smiling Ronnie and all of the horrible, horrible things he did. But people bought it because Ronald Reagan basically came across as your good old Uncle Al. And he'd get up there and he'd hold that. He'd put a cock his head to the side and say, Well, gee, I realize that this is illegal and unconstitutional. And a lot of people died. But what the heck? I can't really go into my description of it because of national security. And so on and so forth. 
once again. And their sense of identification was reading once again from they thought they were free. And their sense of identification with Hitler, their trust in him, made it easier to widen this gap and reassure those who would otherwise have worried about it. This separation of government from people, this widening of the gap took place so gradually and so insensibly, each step disguised, perhaps not even intentionally, as a temporary emergency measure or associated with true patriotic allegiance or with real social purposes. And all the crises and reforms, real reforms too, so occupied the people that they did not see the slow motion underneath of the whole process of government growing remoter and remoter. You will understand me when I say that my middle high German was my life. By the way, he was obviously a uh, professor of German. Continuing, it was all I cared about. I was a scholar, a specialist. Then suddenly I was plunged into all the new activity as the university was drawn into the new situation. Meetings, conferences, interviews, ceremonies, and above all, papers to be filled out. Reports, bibliographies, lists, questionnaires. And on top of that were the demands in the community. The things in which one had to, was, quote, expected to, unquote, participate that had not been there or had not been important before. It was all rigmarole, of course, but it consumed all one's energies coming on top of the work one really wanted to do. You can see how easy it was then not to think about fundamental things. One had no time, unquote. Continuing. Those, I said, are the words of my friend the baker. One had no time to think. There was so much going on, unquote. Your friend the baker was right, said my colleague. The dictatorship and the whole process of it coming into being was above all diverting. It provided an excuse not to think for people who did not want to think anyway. I do not speak of your little men, your baker and so on. I speak of colleagues and myself. I speak of my colleagues and myself, learned men, mind you. Most of us did not want to think about fundamental things and never had. There was no need to. Nazism gave us some dreadful, fundamental things to think about. We were decent people and kept us so busy with continuous changes and crises and so fascinated, yes, fascinated, by the machinations of the, quote, national enemies, unquote, without and within, that we had no time to think about these dreadful things that were growing, little by little, all around us. Unconsciously, I suppose, we were grateful. Who wants to think? Interrupting again, uh, just think about how many people you know who don't really want to think. And so they really don't think. They just go ahead and participate in the things that everyone is, quote, expected, unquote, to do. Continuing. To live in this process is absolutely not to be able to notice it. Please try to believe me, unless one has a much greater degree of political awareness, acuity, than most of us had ever had occasion to develop. Each step was so small, so inconsequential, so well explained or on occasion, quote, regretted, unquote, that unless one were detached from the whole process from the beginning, 
unless one understood what the whole thing was in principle, what all these, quote, little measures, unquote, that no, quote, patriotic German, unquote, could resent must someday lead to, one no more saw it developing from day to day than a farmer in his field sees the corn growing. One day, it is over his head. How is this to be avoided among ordinary men, even highly educated ordinary men? Frankly, I do not know. I do not see even now. Many, many times since it all happened, I have pondered that pair of great maxims, Principis obstein finem respice, resist the beginnings and consider the end. But one must foresee the end in order to resist or even see the beginnings. One must foresee the end clearly. And certainly, how is this to be done by ordinary men or even by extraordinary men? Things might have changed here before they went as far as they did. They didn't, but they might have. And everyone counts on that might. Continuing with, they thought they were free. Your little men, your Nazi friends, were not against National Socialism in principle. Men like me who were are the greater offenders, not because we knew better, that would be too much to say, but because we sensed better. Pastor Niemöller spoke for the thousands and thousands of men like me when he spoke too modestly of himself and said that when the Nazis attacked the communists, he was a little uneasy, but after all, he was not a communist and so he did nothing. And then they attacked the socialists, and he was a little uneasier, but still he was not a socialist, and he did nothing. And then the schools, the press, the Jews, and so on, and he was always uneasier, but still he did nothing. And then they attacked the church, and he was a churchman, and he did something, but then it was too late, unquote. Yes, I said. You see, my colleague went on, one doesn't see exactly where or how to move. Believe me, this is true. Each act, each occasion is worse than the last, but only a little worse. You wait for the next and the next. You wait for one great shocking occasion, thinking that others, when such a shock comes, will join with you in resisting somehow. You don't want to act or even talk alone. You don't want to, quote, go out of your way to make trouble, unquote. Why not? Well, you are not in the habit of doing it, and it is not just fear, fear of standing alone, that restrains you. It is also genuine uncertainty. Uncertainty is a very important factor, and instead of decreasing as time goes on, it grows. Outside in the streets, in the general community, everyone, quote, unquote, is happy. One hears no protest and certainly sees none. You know, in France... Or Italy, there would be slogans against the government painted on walls and fences. In Germany, outside the great cities, perhaps, there is not even this. In the university community, in your own community, you speak privately to your colleagues, some of whom certainly feel as you do. But what do they say? They say, it's not so bad, or you're seeing things, or you're an alarmist, unquote. Or, as one hears in my field, you're paranoid, or you're a conspiracy theorist, quote-unquote. Last couple of sentences again. In the university community, in your own community, you speak privately to your colleagues, some of whom certainly feel as you do. But what do they say? They say, it's not so bad, or you're seeing things, or you're an alarmist. And you are an alarmist. 
You are saying that this must lead to this, and you can't prove it. These are the beginnings, yes, but how do you know for sure when you don't know the end? And how do you know or even surmise the end? Interrupting, we now have the lesson of history. And so as we hear these words describing the German experience of 1933 through 45, we are in a position now to know the end. We do not have the excuse that this professor had. Continuing, on the one hand, your enemies, the law, the regime, the party, intimidate you. On the other, your colleagues poo-poo you as pessimistic or even neurotic. Again, interrupting, you're paranoid or you're a conspiracy theorist or I don't believe in conspiracy theories. How do you know for sure when you don't know the end? Hmm? Continuing. On the other, your colleagues poo-poo you as pessimistic or even neurotic. You are left with your close friends who are naturally people who have always thought as you have. But your friends are fewer now. Some have drifted off somewhere or submerged themselves in their work. You no longer see as many as you did at meetings or gatherings. Step B, why should you at step C? And so on to step D. Continuing. And one day, too late, your principles, if you were ever sensible of them, all rush in upon you. The burden of self-deception has grown too heavy, and some minor incident, in my case, my little boy, hardly more than a baby, saying, Juice wine, collapses it all at once, and you see that everything, everything has changed and changed completely under your nose. The world you live in, your nation, your people, is not the world you were born in at all. The forms are all there, all untouched, all reassuring. The houses, the jobs, the shops, the meal times, the visits, the concerts, the cinema, the holidays. But the spirit, which you never noticed because you made the lifelong mistake of identifying it with the forms, is changed. Now you live in a world of hate and fear, and the people who hate and fear do not even know it themselves. When everyone is transformed, no one is transformed. Now you live in a system which rules without responsibility even to God. The system itself could not have intended this in the beginning, but in order to sustain itself, it was compelled to go all the way. You have gone almost all the way yourself. Life is a continuing process, a flow, not a succession of acts and events at all. It has flowed to a new level, carrying you with it without any effort on your part. On this new level you live, you have been living more comfortably every day with new morals, new principles. You have accepted things you would not have accepted five years ago, a year ago, things that your father, even in Germany, could not have imagined. Suddenly it all comes down all at once. You see what you are, what you have done, or... More accurately, what you haven't done. For that was all that was required of most of us, that we do nothing. Unquote. Well, uh, that sense applies to every member of the listening audience. Are you going to do something, or are you not going to do something? To be or not to be, as uh, Hamlet said, in uh, the play by the same name. 
I think a very important perspective can be gained both on the state of California and on the state of the United States by reading from a very, very important book, one that I'm going to extract for you right now. This book had several different editions, the most recent from which I will read in 1971, almost a quarter of a century ago. The book is entitled Anti-California, Report from Our First Parafascist State. It's authored by Kenneth Lamott, L-A-M-O-T-T, described on the overleaf as follows. Kenneth Lamott grew up in Japan, graduated from Yale University, and served in the Navy during World War II. His work has appeared in various publications, including The New Yorker, Harper's, Horizon, The Nation, and The New York Times Magazine. His previous works include The Stockade, The White Sand of Shirahama, and The Moneymakers. Mr. Lamott now lives in Tiburon, California, with his wife and three children, where he spends most of his time as a writer, a novelist, and an essayist. By the way, he is now deceased. He died in the late 1970s. Kenneth Lamott's Anti-California, report from our first parafascist state, was published in hardcover by Little Brown and Company, and copyrighted, uh, the, the first edition was in 1963, the most recent in 1971. Now, to make a long story short, the basic thesis of Anti-California by Kenneth Lamott is that as goes California, so goes America. He sees California as not only a political entity which will drastically influence America directly, but one which is sort of a harbinger of things to come for the nation as a whole. I guess California could be seen as a pioneer, and there's a pun there, for the rest of the country in a bad way. And bear in mind again that this uh, is being written in 1971, 23 years ago, and I don't think one, I don't think it requires a great leap of faith to see this particular book as ominously prophetic. In the conclusion to Anti-California, Kenneth Lamott writes as follows. To recapitulate, then, what, I've, what I have argued in this book is that the traditional forms of American life have been disintegrating faster in California than they have... The, beginning again, to recapitulate, then, what I have argued in this book is that the traditional forms of American life have been disintegrating faster in California than they have been elsewhere, and that we are in the midst of a profound reorientation in a new direction. The process of disintegration is visible both in the breakdown of individual morale and in the growing impotence of such institutions as the universities, the churches, the political parties, and the labor unions. For the individual, life in California is oriented toward leisure rather than toward work that has some meaning for its own sake. Marriage and the family are becoming increasingly insecure. There is a growing familiarity with death, either symbolic death with alcohol and other drugs, or vicarious death through employment in the garrison state, or literal death through suicide. The forces of darkness are breaking through the sunlit surface of California life, announcing their presence by means of such phenomena as the murderous history of the Charles Manson family and the brilliant and tragic career of Angela Davis. By the way, in uh, Radio Free America program number 23, and Radio Free America 12, as well as the aforementioned miscellaneous two-part archive series about Satanism, mind control, and the U.S. national security establishment, we dealt with national security connections uh, to both, uh, and, and fascist connections to the Manson family operation, and uh, also dealt with the setting up of Angela Davis by elements of the criminal conspiracy section of the LAPD, according to Lewis Tackett, one of its operatives and informants. Continuing. 
In the public sphere, the political parties have virtually disappeared as useful instruments of the process of government. The most powerful labor unions have become adjuncts of the garrison state. Among the churches, some have attempted to come to grips with the real problems, uh, problems of a largely unchurched population, but at the cost of fragmentation and institutional decay. The universities are on the brink of being destroyed, both by internal turmoil and by the eagerness of political leaders to profit by that turmoil. Political power in California has fallen into the hands of men who are not politicians in the customary sense, but who have no reluctance to extend their areas of control. They have made their essential orientation clear. It is anti-youth, anti-intellectual, anti-minority, anti-dissent, pro-police, pro-property rights. Their power is cresting. When I consider the future of California, I see a reconstruction of our collective life that will lead to internal harmony and order, but that will make California an impossible place in which to live. I see first the progressive atrophying of such political life as we now enjoy. Choice in the political sphere will become increasingly restricted. Whether the governor is Mr. Reagan or whether he is somebody else will not make much difference. The movement of California's political life will be toward preserving stability at all costs, ultimately at the cost of eroding the Bill of Rights. People will be imprisoned for political reasons and cause will be found to keep them in prison. Privacy will be invaded to a degree unthinkable 20 years ago. Computerized dossiers will be maintained on all dissenters and potential dissenters. News will be managed and thought will be controlled. Unless I am much mistaken, the rebellion on the campuses has about run its course. The love generation is certainly gone. The counterculture of the young will be remembered as a brilliant and threatening comet that will not be expected to return. The political ghosts of Mario Savio and Angela Davis will be invoked to legitimize the suppression of whatever mild rebellion raises its head. The next generation will be silent, clever, biddable. Skipping down. Given our national leadership and the state of the world generally, I do not see much chance that California will be required to plow under its missile factories and napalm plants. Instead, we will become increasingly dependent on war as our one-crop economy. The brightest of the new generation of young people will be enlisted in careers in the war industries. They will learn to go willingly. The relations between the races will worsen rather than become better. The more mobile, middle-class blacks will escape to join their white, their white brethren in the suburbs. Los Angeles, Oakland, and San Francisco will become dumping grounds for semi-employable black no-hopers. When civil disturbances occur, they will be stamped out promptly, bringing to bear all the technology of repression that has been perfected to cope with the campus. When blacks and browns are gassed, clubbed, killed by gunfire, and arrested collectively, there will not be as much protest as there was when white students were the victims. Yet the blacks and the browns will manage to burn the cities, and great areas that once housed people will be allowed to stand as monuments to death and destruction. We will welcome this new world, for we ourselves will have made it. We will insist that we are living in the realm of Eros, but the temple we will have built will be occupied by Thanatos. The rhetoric will remain that of the promised land, but the reality will be closer to George Orwell's nightmare. We will give away the truth by destroying ourselves literally and symbolically at an increasing rate. Alcohol will remain our principal anesthetic, 
But marijuana and the less virulent narcotics will be increasingly used in wider circles than they are now. Our madhouses will overflow. There will be an increasing number of suicides that will be hard to explain on any rational basis. And so in the end, the land that Walt Whitman described as a flashing and golden pageant and that Mark Twain called the crown princess of the new dispensation will indeed become our first para-fascist state. As California has gone, so eventually will go the rest of the United States. That again was written in 1971, and it is ominously, hauntingly, eerily prophetic. As to how far this progression goes, well, that remains to be seen. That, in the end, will be up to members of the listening audience. If people want to remain passive, then the realities so ominously described and accurately described by or predicted by Charles Lamott, writing in 1971 in Anti-California, they will become realities. The proto-fascistic realities of Propositions 187 and 184 will lead eventually not to para-fascism, but to fascism itself. The scapegoating of people of color, poor people, illegal immigrants for our problems, problems created by affluent white people, will ultimately lead to the same sorts of tragic results that they had in Nazi Germany. And unfortunately, that is the reality which awaits those of us here in the United States. Recall that a couple of weeks back when I reread the passage from uh, They Thought They Were Free, the college professor quoted by Michael Mayer said that one must uh, resist the beginning, one must foresee the end in order to resist the beginnings. But how can one foresee the end? Well, we now have a lesson of history. We have seen the end, and we are in a position to uh, resist the beginnings if we dare. Otherwise, I think a future economic collapse, and one is coming in my considered opinion. I don't know when it will happen. I don't know whether it will be precipitous, as it was in 1929, or gradual. I tend to think gradual. But as the economy tightens, the degree of scapegoating will increase. We will see increasing pressures to keep people who are, quote, undesirable out, or perhaps even to dispose of people who are deemed uh, excess, be that uh, people with AIDS, uh, people on drugs, people who are horribly deformed, uh, the handicapped, the mentally ill. I think the pressures to eventually eliminate those people who can no longer be supported by the infrastructure during an economic collapse will be great. They will grow. And uh, bearing in mind the Nauer case in Germany, which was the legal opening for the Nazi extermination programs, uh, I think we have to be very, very, very careful about the progressions of the international, uh, the progressions of uh, the mental hygiene, eugenics, and euthanasia movements here in the United States. Otherwise, we will be having Auschwitzes, Treblinkas, and Bergen-Belsens here in the United States, too, if that first legal door is allowed to open as it was in Nazi Germany. If it is, then those things will happen here in the United States, either to make a pun now or, now or later, sooner or later, now or later, uh, the Nauer case will become a reality here in the United States with all that implies. My country, tis of thee, sure looks like Germany, 1933. Prepared for genocide, shrouded in foolish pride, 
from every mountainside let free down The most infamous and deadly of the camps was at a place called Shark Island. Shark Island was established for the express purpose of killing people. Anybody placed on that island, everybody knew they were going to die. People knew that, the German officers knew that. If I were to have to use the language of the Nazi period, then I would certainly see Shark Island as a death camp. The people were banged together in Shark Island for all over Namibia. Heroes, Tamaras, Bushman, Nama. And they had cool-blooded murder there. My own family, my ancestors, they were also killed. In this desolate place, on the southern edge of Africa, three and a half thousand people were exterminated with a speed and efficiency that was to become the hallmark of 20th century slaughter. The genocides which took place in Namibia in 1904 to 1909, they are the precursor to what happens in the Nazi period. They are the precursor, they have the same symptoms in the sense that you can see the bureaucratization of mass killing and this for me is the central thing it's not just killing for killing no it's a combination between killing and bureaucracy today shark island is a campsite for tourists the africans who were frozen and starved to death here have been almost erased from memory But a century after the Namibian genocide, the true horror of what happened on Shark Island is beginning to re-emerge. In a recently discovered mass grave, just a few kilometers from the site of Shark Island, lie some of the victims of the 20th century's first genocide. Other victims were denied even the meagre dignity of a mass grave. They became the raw material of racial science. Their skulls and even severed heads were sold to museums in Europe and used to prove the inferiority of Africans. The trade in skulls was so accepted that it was even depicted on a postcard. In the aftermath of the genocide, 
German racial scientists continued to use Namibia as a field laboratory and the African peoples who had survived as their subjects. In 1908, a eugenicist called Eugen Fischer traveled to the small town of Rehoboth, home to a people of mixed Boer and African heritage, who called themselves the Rehoboth Bastards. Fischer and his assistants spent months photographing, measuring, and examining the inhabitants of this town, people whose descendants still live here. The person at the bottom there is my grandfather, Malcolm McNabb, and above him is his brother, Charles McNabb. My grandfather used to talk a lot about what they did, measurements, the eyes, the nose, the lips, the ears, hair, etc. They was not aware of the nature of the experiment. Lying in the vaults of an archive in modern-day Namibia, Eugen Fischer's original files and photographs remain as he left them a century ago. They reveal his methods and also his aims. Here Eugen Fischer has lined the different pictures up next to each other to try to trace very specific facial features like the eyes or the noses. And the reason he's done this is to try to show how very specific African facial features like high cheekbones and the, the drawn out eyes that represent the African genes are very prominent and become more prominent through the degenerations. Eugen Fischer came to Namibia to prove one basic point and that was that racial mixing was always bad and that the African gene is dominant over the white gene. Fischer's work in Rehoboth sealed his reputation as one of Germany's leading racial scientists. It also brought him recognition from a nation that was then experiencing the greatest influx of immigration the world had ever seen. In the first years of the 20th century, the ethnic makeup of America was being transformed as millions of immigrants poured into her great cities. Many of those who feared that mass immigration would lead to widespread racial mixing looked to the ideas of eugenics, an increasingly powerful science. Eugenics flourished, mutated and went out of control when it got to the United States. And the irony is that the eugenics movement in the United States, which, which uh, certainly descended directly from Galton, um, had the great advantage of having a lot of money huge amount of money. Some of that money was used to establish the Eugenics Records Office, ran by the infamous Charles Davenport. In order to defend the health and purity of the white race, Davenport and his followers sought to identify those classes and those races in America whom they considered genetically unfit. Identified and monitored, the scientists would then take control of their lives and their fertility. Once you were identified as a certain class, it meant what school you could go to, what cemetery you could be buried in, where you could live. It was a matter of life and death. 
marriage laws were established in dozens of states around the United States saying that people could not marry outside of their group. Blacks could not marry whites. Um, Indians could not marry blacks. In Virginia, if you married the wrong person, meaning interracial marriage, they would unmarry you. They would invalidate your marriage. 27 states passed eugenics marriage laws and the eugenicists spread their message using the new medium of cinema. The propaganda was intended to protect the genetic health of the white race. This would be achieved by eradicating those deemed unworthy through forced mass sterilization. They went about methodically tracking ancestry and, tar and targeting bloodlines for extinction. That's eugenics. The effort to create a white, master, blonde, blue-eyed master race by wiping out other bloodlines until they were left only with themselves and people who resembled themselves. And what's important here is that these people thought they were saving humanity. These people thought they were liberals. They were reformers. Eugenics was a worldwide movement. In Sweden, an official program forcibly sterilized 60,000 people, mental patients, and members of the ethnic minorities. In Britain, the Eugenic Society received widespread support from across the political spectrum. But it was in Germany that the radical ideas of the American eugenics movement found its most receptive audience. Anything connected to America would be, seem to be modern, progressive, scientific, democratic, reasonable, so it must be good. America was the future, the force of the future. Secondly, I think that many European eugenicists, including the Germans, like the tone adopted by American eugenicists, which was very radical and sort of no-nonsense, and uh, they didn't use euphemisms, they said exactly what they meant. The Americans provided more than just inspiration. American foundations also bankrolled the development of German eugenics. This was the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute of Anthropology and Human Heredity. In the 1930s, the men and women who worked here received grants from the American Rockefeller Foundation. And the leading scientist here was the man who made his name in Namibia, Eugen Fischer. Under the Nazis, Fischer was empowered to sterilize the racially mixed people of Germany's Rhineland, 400 of them, all children. The majority of those sterilized by the Nazis before 1939, however, were the mentally ill. But when the Nazis began their war, they abandoned sterilization in favor of adult euthanasia, the Nazi euphemism for murder. The victims of this program were amongst the first people gassed by the Nazis. But the program wasn't restricted to the mentally ill. When um, 
they have killed the target figure of mental patients they want to kill, which is roughly 70,000 people. They slightly exceeded it. So the first thing they do then is to contact the SS, who have large numbers of what they deem to be sick um, concentration camp prisoners, in other words, people who might have got wear glasses or you know, be myopic or have a wooden leg or something, so they want them out of the way, so these people oblige and they take fifteen or twenty thousand people from the concentration camps and kill them on behalf of the SS. It's a bit like sort of contract work. And then when the um, uh, SS and other people have decided they're going to go for the big project, which is to kill the Jewish population of Europe, and in particular that of Poland, which is the biggest population they're concerned with, then those people push themselves forward and say, well, hey, we can do this, we've done it, we have a record of doing this, we murder people. And they become the core personnel in all the big extermination camps. These killing centres were the second network of concentration camps and death camps in German history. And the experts in eugenics, or race hygiene as the Germans called it, were involved not just in their day-to-day -day running, but also in the highest levels of planning. It's worth reminding ourselves that the Bonsai Conference, which was the one that set up the plan for the final solution, almost half the people around that table had doctorates, PhDs, in race hygiene, or genetics, as we'd say today. So there really is a genuine link between the Galtonian agenda and the horrors which happened in Germany. The German experts in race hygiene who assembled here at the Wannsee Villa outside Berlin dreamed of racial genocide just like their spiritual predecessors, the race scientists and the social Darwinists of the Age of Empire. But the colonial genocides, inspired and justified by the 19th century theorists, have been written out of Europe's history. The horrors of the Shark Island death camp, the destruction of the Tasmanian Aboriginals, the 30 million victims of the Indian famines, all have been forgotten. The erasure of this memory encourages the belief that Nazi violence was an aberration in European history. Though the Holocaust itself was motivated by the fanatical anti-Semitism of the Nazis, it can also be seen as part of a longer historical continuum, one that identifies it as a logical extension of scientific racism. But this history, like the bones in the Namibian deserts, refuses to remain buried forever. and for future generations, a new world order, 
a world where the rule of law, not the law of the jungle, governs the conduct of nations. When we are successful, and we will be, we have a real chance at this new world order, an order in which a credible United Nations can use its peacekeeping role to fulfill the promise and vision of the UN's founders. Something's happening. We've known it for a long time. The United Nations can and should play an essential role in helping the world find a satisfactory way of stabilizing world population. Now the world today has 6.8 billion people. That's headed up to about 9 billion. Now if we do a really great job on new vaccines, health care, reproductive health services, we could lower that by perhaps 10 or 15 percent. We have a situation now, not just in America, but in, in Britain and the wider world, where between birth and about two years of age, we're having children be given 25 and rising different vaccinations and combinations of them, poured in all this, uh, these chemical cocktails uh, that destabilize the body, but more important than that, they have to be dealt with by a still developing immune system. So the immune system's still developing, it's still coming up to optimum uh, efficiency, and suddenly this tidal wave of chemical concoctions is thrown at it and has to deal with it. As it's deal, dealing with one, suddenly another one comes. 25 vaccinations over the first two years of life. It is, by any level of common sense, it's ludicrous, and it's meant to be ludicrous because it's target, targeting the immune systems of young children, which, because it's done at a developing time in the immune system, rewires it destabilizes it, imbalances it for the rest of their lives. Those kids' immune system will never be as efficient as it would have been otherwise. Your new world order will fall. Humanity will defeat you. The answer to 1984 is 1776. You must teach people to love their leader. It's the only most important. Why don't we learn from the mistakes of our ancestors? Why does humankind find itself bound? A cycle of bloodshed and enslavement. Predatory elites have always rationalized their oppression by claiming that they are superior 
and have the divine right to rule, when all they really are is a gaggle of ruthless psychopaths, parasitically feeding on the host population, until their cancerous movement causes the collapse of the host. There have been thousands of tyrannical governments in history, and less than ten that can truly be called free. In the 20th century alone, over 150 million people were murdered at the hands of the state. In Russia, the Red Terror consumed the lives of more than 60 million men, women, and children. Hitler's war killed 22 million. During Mao Zedong's reign alone, more than 60 million peasant farmers were killed. And the list goes on. 300,000 innocent civilians killed in Guatemala. More than 2 million souls brutally murdered by the government of Cambodia. 1,500,000 killed in Turkey. 300,000 in Uganda. 800,000 plus hacked to death with machetes in Rwanda. Sadly, there are too many examples of innocent families being exterminated by their governments on an industrial scale to name them all. It is a historical fact that the state is the number one cause of unnatural death. If you take the 150 million people killed by power-mad government in the last century and divide it by 100,000, the number of souls lost would fill the biggest sports stadium packed with 100,000 screaming fans 1,500 times over. That's 1,500 sports stadiums crammed with 100,000 people each, all exterminated. For those who think it can't happen here or won't happen to them, you have been warned. The scientific rationale for tyranny has always been attractive to elites because it creates a convenient excuse for treating their fellow man as lower than animals. Robert Thomas Malthus, famous for saying that a mass food collapse would be helpful because it would wipe out the poor. His fictional scenario would later be called a Malthusian catastrophe. Malthus is important because his ideas led to the rise of a new scientific field that would dominate the course of human history for the next 200 plus years. Charles Darwin, an admirer of the Malthusian catastrophe model, developed the theory of evolution, its chief tenet being the survival of the fittest. With the help of T.H. Huxley, known as Darwin's bulldog for his strong support of Darwin's theories, Darwin's theories were pushed into wide acceptance among key scientific circles throughout England and then the world. Darwin's cousin, Francis Galton, credited as the father of eugenics, saw an opportunity to advance mankind by taking the reins of Darwin's evolution theory and applied social principles to develop social Darwinism. The families, Darwin, Galton, Huxley, and Wedgwood were so obsessed with their new social design theory that they pledged their families would only breed with each other. They falsely predicted that within only a few generations, they would produce supermen. The emerging pseudoscience was only codifying the practice of inbreeding, already popular within elites for millennia. The four families experiment was a disaster. Within only two generations of inbreeding, close to 90% of their offspring 
either died at birth or were seriously mentally or physically handicapped. The moneyed class of the planet, and particularly the royal families of the world, who were already obsessed with breeding and filled with a predatory disdain for the underclass, seized on the new science and began aggressively enforcing its aims worldwide. Biometrics appears to be a new science, but it was actually developed by Galton back in the 1870s as a way to track racial traits and genetic histories and as a way to decide who would be licensed to breed. In 1904, the Cold Springs Harbor Research Facility was started in the United States by eugenicist Charles Davenport with the funding of prominent robber barons Carnegie, Rockefeller, and Harriman. In 1907, the first sterilization laws were passed in the United States. Citizens with mild deformities or low test scores on their report cards were arrested and forcibly sterilized. 1910, the U.S. Eugenics Record Office was set up. By then, the British had created the first work of social workers expressly to serve as spies and enforcers of the eugenics cult that was rapidly taking control of Western society. The social workers would decide who would have their children taken away, who would be sterilized, and in some cases, who would be quietly murdered. When you look at the, the bloodline families and the control system that they oversee, it seems that they are all-powerful. They control the media ownership level and they keep positions within it. They control the corporations, the cartels of oil and pharmaceuticals, etc. Uh, they control the, um, the forces of law enforcement and the, the military, ultimately. But one thing they don't control is the numbers. This is what humanity has. It has vast numbers of people, enormous numbers of people, compared with those at the core of the control system that actually know exactly what they're doing and what the agenda is. They are tiny in number compared with what is now supposed to be 7 billion people on the planet. So one of the agendas to bring this under greater control for them is to massively cull the population. They want to reduce the numbers. Now, if you, if you want to uh, re remove lots of people, you can do it by injecting uh, stuff into people's arms and they just keel over dead. But if you do that, um, and of course there is some of that that goes on, but if you do that, all the other people lined up are going to say, excuse me, <laughs> I ain't having whatever they've had. So you do it in a more subtle way and you target the defense mechanism that everyone has called the immune system. For instance, people don't die of AIDS. They die of AIDS-related disease, which are diseases that the immune system, before it becomes shot, uh, would have defended the body from. So all the time now we're having the immune system targeted, not least among children and young people uh, by vaccinations, by food additives and drink additives, etc. And if we just think about this, I mean, it, it's so blatant. If we, people just take a, a, a deep breath and take a step back and look at it with a bit of peripheral vision. And it has been planned for a very, very long time. <clears throat> you can pick up the confirmation of this in different points through um, 
history. To have a situation where you manipulate a mass global vaccination program uh, to target the population uh, at one time. We're seeing this now with the swine flu. Other examples of this, for instance, in 1969, there was a doctor uh, called Dr. Richard Day, who was head at the time of Planned Parenthood, which of course is a eugenics organization, which used to have eugenics in its name. And he told doctors in Philadelphia, or Pittsburgh, I think, P Pittsburgh, in uh, 1969, a series of things that he said were going to happen in the years to come to transform society and bring in this control system. And when you look at what he said, compared with what's happening now, it's extraordinarily accurate. And some of the areas he covered were that they were going to create new viruses in laboratories that were resistant to drugs, that they were going to use that to cull the population, that they were going to use vaccinations to cull the population, and also that they were going to uh, change the way that healthcare treated old people so that more and more old people died um, and didn't go long into, into life because from their extraordinarily sick perspective, old people are useless to them. And what we're looking at now very clearly is this attempt to play that card of mass global immunization with an a, uh, excuse of this manufactured virus to uh, get access to the, the bodies, the body computer systems, as I would say, of, of, of almost everyone on the planet. And they're not doing that because they want to protect people from anything. Crikey, the force that's saying be vaccinated is the force that created the virus which they're saying be vaccinated against. They're doing this to get access to the global population for very, very malevolent reasons. And um, what people need to realize is that these uh, families do not come from the same perspective of life and respect that we do. They, tr they see humans like cattle, nothing more than cattle, and most humans see cattle. They uh, therefore have no empathy with the consequences for the human population of their actions. So if people say, they'd never do that, mate, no, no, you'd never do that. They do it all the time. This is James Corbett of The Corbett Report with your eye-opener report for BoilingFrogsPost.com. Few in the general public have heard much, if anything at all, about the relatively obscure corner of academia known as bioethics. First emerging as an academic discipline in the late 1960s, bioethics concerns itself with the ethical questions raised by advancing knowledge and technological sophistication in biology, medicine, and the life sciences. When the discussions of the bioethics community eventually filter down to the level of popular discourse, they often seem like bizarre, science fiction-like scenarios about improbable possibilities. So imagine that uh, a drunk driver hits you and um, you're, you're, uh, it crushes, uh, crushes your leg and you're completely traumatized by the event. And uh, they take you to the hospital, and just before your operation, they give you a pill to erase your memory of this traumatic event. My colleagues and I asked 30 volunteers to make judgments in a series of moral dilemmas like the one I described to you. 
We wanted to see whether we could change people's judgments of right and wrong by manipulating a particular brain chemical called serotonin. Imagine what's going to happen when we have a memory pill. First of all, you don't have to raise your hand, but let's be honest, who here is going to take it? Okay? You know? As unlikely or ivory towerish as these scenarios might appear at first blush, there could be no dispute that the technologies for implementing these ideas are increasingly within our grasp. What many fail to appreciate, however, are the dangers inherent in entrusting some of the most important discussions about the life, death, and health of humanity in the hands of a priestly academic class toiling in relative obscurity to produce position papers for government advisory boards. As more and more increasingly outrageous headlines begin to gain notoriety among the general public, Newsweek making the case for killing granny, for example, or the recent widespread coverage of an article in the Journal of Medical Ethics promoting infanticide, many are only beginning to realize what the authors of the afterbirth abortion paper admitted in such a blasé fashion in the open letter they used to defend their proposal. These debates have been going on in the bioethics community for 40 years. They are only now arriving as a type of fait accompli to be digested by the public. Good morning. Uh, first, the U.S. has been adding a fluoride to its public water supply for decades, and of course, to prevent tooth decay. Well, now researchers from Japan are suggesting that we add lithium. So, why is that? Well, they're actually not suggesting it, but they're certainly looking into it. Lithium is a medication that in prescription doses treats mood disorders in people with bipolar disorder or manic depressive illness. And what these researchers found in Japan is that it's, uh, lithium is present in trace amounts in the normal water supply in some communities. And in those communities, they have a lower suicide rate. And so they're really investigating whether trace amounts of lithium can just change the mood in a community enough to really, in a, in a positive way, without having the bad effects of lithium, to really affect the mood and decrease the suicide rate. Very interesting hmm. concept. Hey, Remy, let's tackle the former question first. We already have fluoride in tap water for our teeth. Why not add some lithium for our mind? It can't hurt. <laughs> well, it's, apparently it really can. It can only help. I mean, there are days that I'd like a little pick-me-up, yeah. put a smile on my face. By the way, your face is not getting fatter. Oh, why, thank Just you. Just so we're clear. You know, bit. You'll be back. <laughs> uh, so right now what you see is it's squeezing higher education. You're raising tuitions at the University of California at the, as rapidly as they can. And so the access that used to be available to the middle class or whatever is just rapidly going away. That's a trade-off society is making because of very, very high medical costs and a lack of willingness to say, you know, is spending a million dollars on that last three months of life for that patient, would it be better not to lay off the, those 10 teachers and to make that trade-off in medical costs? But that's called the death panel. Uh, and you're not supposed to have that discussion. Although Gates's desire for death panels seem frighteningly out of tune with the majority of Americans, these thoughts are very much in the mainstream of bioethics. As historian and researcher Anton Chaitkin has documented in great detail, the death panel discussions in bioethics relate directly to a very disturbing history, one that ties people like Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, brother of former White House Chief of Staff and current Mayor of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel, to the pseudoscience of eugenics. In 2009, Chaitkin presented some of his research on the history of the bioethics euthanasia idea to a meeting of a federal council that was set up to propose funding priorities that would withdraw funding for healthcare procedures from the elderly. 
Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel and other avowed cost cutters on this panel also lead a propaganda movement for euthanasia headquartered at the Hastings Center, of which Dr. Emanuel is a fellow. They shape public opinion and the medical profession to accept a death culture such as the Washington state law passed in November to let physicians help kill patients whose medical care is now rapidly being withdrawn in the universal health disaster. Dr. Emanuel's movement for bioethics and euthanasia and this council's purpose directly continue the eugenics movement that organized Hitler's killing of patients and then other costly and supposedly unworthy people. Dr. Emanuel wrote last October 12th that a crisis, war and financial collapse would get the frightened public to accept the program. Hitler told Dr. Brandt his, in 1935 that the euthanasia program would have to wait until the war began to get the public to go along. Dr. Emanuel wrote last year that the Hippocratic Oath should be junked. Doctors should no longer just serve the needs of the patient. Uh, Hoche and Binding, the German eugenicists, exactly said the same thing to start the killing. You on the council are drawing up the procedures the, uh, to, uh, list to be used to deny care, which will kill millions if it goes ahead in the present world crash. Chaikin's assertions are backed by a litany of data, showing that in fact both the Nazi eugenics movement and the modern bioethics discipline share a common root, the now discredited 19th century pseudoscience known as eugenics. First coined by Francis Galton, eugenics refers to the theory of hereditable intelligence and morality, which posited that wealthy, successful, and intelligent individuals were made so by virtue of their good breeding, and that the wicked and vice-ridden lower classes would always remain so because they continued to breed with other poor people. Naturally, this idea appealed to a large section of the scientific community in late Victorian England, providing as it did a justification for their own privilege and wealth. Eugenics soon became a superstar science, propounded by celebrities, politicians, and social campaigners with a vested interest in finding a scientific justification for racial and class discrimination. After the Nazis tarnished the name of eugenics in the eyes of the public, the U.S. Eugenics Society began a process known as crypto-eugenics, changing the name and outward function of the eugenics movement while maintaining its core ideas and goals. As American Eugenics Society co-founder Frederick Osborne wrote, eugenic goals are most likely to be attained under a name other than eugenics. Thus Eugenics Quarterly, a journal co-founded by Osborne for publishing eugenics research, changed its name in 1970 to Social Biology. The American Eugenics Society was renamed the Society for the Study of Social Biology. Osborne himself took the reins of the Population Council, which had been created by John D. Rockefeller III to focus on the threat of the expansion of non-white populations. The Eugenics Society merely moved its offices into the Population Council headquarters, and the two groups merged together. In 1968, the Population Council and the Rockefeller family provided funds for Daniel Callahan to found the Hastings Center, one of the earliest and most influential of the academic bioethics research institutes, boasting many of the leading bioethicists as fellows, including Ezekiel Emanuel and Peter Singer. The link is made even more transparent by the fact that the founding director of the Hastings Center, Theodore Dobzhansky, was a chairman of the American Eugenics Society, while Hastings director Callahan became a director of the society. Earlier today I had the chance to talk to John Rappaport, an author, 
researcher, and investigative reporter at nomorefakenews.com about the American-based, Rockefeller-supported, crypto-eugenics pedigree of the bioethics discipline and what this means for those attempting to come to an understanding of the profession. I mean, you're right in tracing this history, and this is the other thread of the whole argument here about bioethics and who lives and who dies. That American movement was eventually exported to Nazi Germany. It started really here. It, w it then moved to Nazi Germany, and of course, they ratcheted up, you know, thousands of degrees, literally. It is this notion that the fittest should survive and so it falls to those who have superior knowledge to decide who are the fittest because that's what we want in the future I mean there's much science fiction that backs this kind of thing up you read H.G. Wells novel for example The Shape of Things to Come there are others there's a whole British tradition behind this idea of in the future we're going to have a superior kind of human well how do we do this we have to identify who is uh, inferior and eliminate them because otherwise they're going to contaminate the gene pool and so decisions will be made and we get now up until the present many different kinds of arguments now coming out of academia for example Lee Silver at Princeton University he argues, let the market decide. In the future, this is what's going to happen. Those who can afford it are going to buy synthetic genes to be inserted into their children, pre or post birth, and those are going to be the most talented, intelligent, able, strong individuals. And this upper crust of society is going to live apart. The rest of society is going to be, quote, the animals, I mean, the lower caste, and they will never interbreed. They will live separately. And so what Silver is saying, it's coming. There's nothing that can stop it. This is how it's going to play out. And he's taking a, quote, libertarian position on it. The market will determine how this comes down. Now you have other such, quote, thinkers who are arguing as advocates for one side of this or the other. But it's speckled with many different versions now of eugenics or crypto-eugenics, where different people are weighing in. And what's happening as a result of it, and I follow this in my reporting, I can see now that society is softening around the edges vis-a-vis -vis this notion. It's not just, oh my God, that's horrific. People are going, well, maybe that's a good idea. Unbelievable, but it's happening. Different societies throughout the centuries have answered the question of who gets to live and who gets to die in different ways. Throughout much of human history, that question was resolved at a community level, based on practices, traditions, and cultural norms that had developed among specific people for specific historical reasons. Never before has that decision been made in such a centralized fashion as it is in 21st century society, 
with its increasingly sophisticated medical technologies administered by accredited professionals in clinical settings that must conform to the edicts of boards, organizations, and governmental regulations. The fear amongst the great majority of the American public, a fear that is immediately and roundly mocked by a significant portion of the establishment lapdog media, is that these decisions have led, and will continue to lead, to a society that places a diminished value on the sanctity of life itself. Given the proposals for infanticide, death panels, and other serious discussions that have been treated as private, members-only discussions amongst the hallowed ranks of bioethics academia, it would be impossible to say that this fear is unfounded. And given the demonstrable ties between the field of bioethics and the discredited eugenics movement, it does not seem unreasonable at all to question how and why the United States, the most materially wealthy country in the history of civilization, would be so eager to begin weighing the costs of keeping granny alive against the costs of employing teachers. In this case, it seems, as in many other cases, the only people who are interested in shutting down the discussions are the ones who know they would lose them were they to be opened up for public debate. NCRV, here and now, Nederland 2. Now, Dr. Burke, uh, your research shows that uh, if all of the United States had been fluoridated, that would mean uh, about 70,000 extra deaths because of cancer per annum. Those are remarkable, impressive, and in fact rather disquieting figures. Could you shortly describe your research in this field and what results did you get from it? Yes. The 70,000, of course, represents, would represent one-fifth of all the cancer deaths in the United States, twice as many from breast cancer in women and twice as many as from lung cancer in man. Uh, to our studies involve comparing the deaths of all persons in the ten largest fluoridated cities of the United States with the ten largest non-fluoridated cities in the United States year by year, and we obtained a very remarkable curve, which you can see here perhaps. Here is the fluoridated, and here is the non-fluoridated set of ten cities each. Before, here's where the fluoridation started, and before this time, both sets of cities were identical. But no sooner had fluoridation started then this curve began to go up, the deaths began to increase, so that this effect occurs very promptly within one, two, or five years. Now this, sir, is conclusive evidence that fluor kills because of cancer. It is one of the most conclusive bits of scientific and biological evidence that I have come across in my 50 years in the field of cancer research. Would this then, in your opinion, be the end of fluor in water? in drinking water? It should be the end, and in the United States it should so be the end by federal law known as the Delaney Amendment, which says that anything found to induce 
cancer in man or animals cannot be legally put into the food or drink of man or animals. And so, uh, and this is all less than one year old, so that it entirely changes any previous ideas of fluoridation that anyone may have had, because this is the first real indication of an important effect. Now, in, uh, in, in this country, of course, the state of the, uh, the dental state of the Union, the way people's teeth look, is incredible indeed. Would you say that uh, stopping fluor had other effects than increasing the dental problems in this country? Well, I would rather look at it that it would certainly help the cancer death situation in this country, which I'm sure most people would agree is far more important than a temporary benefit to teeth in adolescent children. Now this, uh, this, this, you see, amounts to public murder on a grand scale. It is a public crime, it would be, to put fluoride in the drinking water of people. Now, the children of this cameraman and mine, sir, take fluor. Should we stop this immediately? Well, in my opinion, if they were my children, uh, they would not take it anymore. I can only recommend for myself, but I would suggest to you that they stop it. Is there a difference uh, in having fluor in drinking water or administering little fluor pills to children? Well, of course, the little fluor pills are a much smaller proposition than drinking gallons of water per day or per week as well as taking a bath in it and washing your automobile in it and watering your lawns. That's a very massive thing compared to uh, brushing teeth with fluoridated toothpaste. Yes. But uh, our work is immediately concerned with drinking water. What happens to toothpaste, I'm quite willing to uh, let the future studies go into that in more detail. There is, of course, you talk about murder, sir, an ethical aspect to all this, a law aspect, an aspect of people's inhumanity to people. What is your uh, idea about how should this be implemented in our society? The ethical aspects of administering poison, as it were, to people. Well, I think this aspect, this murder aspect, uh, clearly indicates a very strong unethical aspect to forcing people to kill themselves. Of the hundreds of researchers that I've interviewed, scientists, you name it, no one has showed a greater overall knowledge and the skill to articulate it in an easily understandable way than Jeffrey M. Smith. His detailed study of GMOs, Monsanto, suppressing science and research is just amazing. Well, here's the exclusive, never before seen and heard interview with Jeffrey M. Smith. My name is Jeffrey Smith, and I'm the executive director and founder of the Institute for Responsible Technology. Our campaign for healthier eating in America is designed to create a tipping point of consumer rejection against genetically modified foods in order to force them out of the market. Genetically modified foods 
are foods where the gene from one species, say viruses or bacteria, are forced into the DNA of plants such as soy, corn, cotton, canola, sugar beets. Those are the five major GM crops. And the derivatives of those crops, unfortunately, are in the vast majority of processed foods. So when you look and see soy lecithin or soy protein or high fructose corn syrup, even sugar, unless it says cane sugar, will have genetically engineered sugar beet derivatives. The reason why genetically modified foods got on the market in the first place was because an FDA policy claimed that the agency wasn't aware of any information showing that the foods were significantly different. On that basis, they said absolutely no safety testing was necessary if the biotech companies like Monsanto and Dow and DuPont tell us that the foods are safe, then the FDA has no further questions. The concept that the agency was not aware of differences between GM and non-GM foods was pure fiction. Documents made public from a lawsuit seven years after the policy was created proved that the agency was very well aware that there was differences. In fact, the overwhelming consensus among the FDA's own scientists were that genetically modified foods could create allergies, toxins, new diseases, and nutritional problems. They had urged their superiors to require long-term studies. But you see, the first Bush administration had ordered the FDA to promote the biotechnology industry. And so the FDA recruited for a position they created for him, the, they recruited Michael Taylor, Monsanto's former attorney, who later became Monsanto's vice president. While he was in charge, the policy was created that overruled and ignored the science and the scientists. Now, Michael Taylor, who I believe may be responsible for more food-related illnesses and deaths than anyone in human history, for fast-tracking GMOs onto our food supply, he is now the U.S. food safety czar under the Obama administration. While Obama was campaigning in Iowa, where I'm from, he promised us that he would require mandatory labeling of genetically engineered foods. We've been asking for this for years. In fact, nine out of ten Americans want genetically modified foods to be labeled. But because the FDA is ordered to promote the biotechnology industry, they ignore the desire of nine out of ten Americans in order to protect the economic interests of five GMO companies. We had hopes that Obama would fulfill his campaign pledge, but so far, no luck. Instead, Obama has recruited and put into positions of authority, both in the USDA and the FDA, people with very close ties to Monsanto and the biotechnology industry. So he's been a very big disappointment from the side of those of us looking for a reasonable, rational, and safe policy regarding GMOs. In 2009, the American Academy of Environmental Medicine urged all doctors to prescribe non-GMO diets to everyone. They said animal feeding studies have linked GMOs causally with things like reproductive problems, immune system problems, accelerated aging, dysfunctional regulation of insulin and cholesterol, and organ damage and gastrointestinal problems. They asked for doctors around the country to prescribe non-GMO diets and to give out educational materials to help people understand the risks and the alternatives. There are two main reasons why people genetically modify foods. They either drink poison or produce poison. The poison drinkers are called herbicide tolerant. Most popular variety is Roundup Ready. Let me explain. Monsanto scientists found bacteria growing in a chemical waste dump near their factory, surviving in the presence of their herbicide called Roundup. So they had the brilliant idea, let's put it in the food supply. So they took the gene from the bacterium that allowed it to survive applications of Roundup, 
and put it into soybean, corn, cotton, canola, etc. So now you can spray the field with Roundup and it kills all of the other plant biodiversity in the field, but not the Roundup ready soy and Roundup ready corn. The other variety of genetically modified crops produces a poison. They take a gene from a soil bacterium that produces a natural insecticide and put it into the DNA of the plant so every single cell of every single plant in millions of acres has its own little spray bottle that can kill an insect by destroying its digestive system. Because of the herbicide-tolerant crops, particularly the Roundup-ready crops, there's so much more Roundup being used in the United States. We're just drenching our fields with it. In fact, in the, in the first 13 years since GMOs were introduced, it's estimated that 383 million pounds of more of herbicide were sprayed in the United States because of the GMOs. The pesticide-producing crops are called BT for the soil bacterium Bacillus thuringiensis. Now, there is about a 68 million pound decrease of the use of insecticides on these fields over the first 13 years, but the actual amount of insecticide that's produced within every plant, when you add that all up, it's actually more than the insecticide that it displaces. So the overall impact is greater insecticide use as well. What these changes mean is that the plant might produce more allergens, more toxins, more anti-nutrients, more carcinogens, or even less of these. We don't know. It's a genetic roulette. In fact, the process of approval of these GM crops do not evaluate these type of changes. In Monsanto's own studies, which they conveniently left out of their published paper, which we were covered later, they found that in cooked GM soy, there was as much as seven times more of a known allergen called trypsin inhibitor, and about a doubling of an anti-nutrient called soy lectin, which blocks the absorption of certain nutrients. In genetically modified corn, a gene which is normally switched off was switched on to produce an allergen, and other proteins were truncated or changed in shape, which can change a harmless protein into a potentially deadly one. In fact, when they looked at that corn variety, they found 43 different proteins that had significantly changed their levels of expression because of the genetic insertion. So these could be caught wreaking havoc with our health or the environment, but no one has evaluated them. One of the most consistent features of the animal feeding studies is immune responses. Immune responses are the body's reaction to something that they can, it considers foreign and maybe harmful. By definition, genetically modified crops have something foreign, which may be harmful. Now, the immune system problem has been seen consistently in rats, in mice, in any time they test for GMOs. What we're seeing in the human population since GMOs were introduced is an increase in autoimmune disease, inflammation, and allergies. And these are the kinds of things that we would predict if the animal feeding studies were to carry out into human experience. I want to explain two different categories of things that can go wrong. One is for the BT crops. The biotech industry feels confident in putting an insecticide, a toxin called BT, into our corn and cotton plants. And their excuse is that we have a history of safe use using BT in agriculture. It's a soil bacterium. When it's gathered up, the spores and the bacterium that can be sprayed on plants to kill insects. Then it biodegrades or washes off. But what the biotech engineers do is they take the gene that produces that toxin out of the bacterium and put it into the crop. But the crop produces the bacterium at thousands of times the concentration of the natural spray form. It doesn't wash off. It doesn't biodegrade. 
In fact, it's designed molecularly to be more toxic than the natural form. It even has properties of a known allergen. The natural form by itself, however, is not that safe. In fact, peer-reviewed published studies show that when the natural BT toxin is fed to mice, it causes tissue damage and an immune response as powerful as if they've been fed cholera toxin. According to peer-reviewed published studies, when BT toxin was sprayed by plane for gypsy moth infestation in the Pacific Northwest, about 500 people complained of allergic or flu-like symptoms. Some had to go to the hospital. Now, thousands of farm workers in India who are picking the cotton engineered to produce that same BT in higher concentrations are complaining of the same allergic and flu-like symptoms and some have to go to the hospital. When they allow animals to graze on the cotton plants after harvest, thousands of sheep, buffalo, and goats have died. I visited one village where they had allowed their buffalo to graze without harm for years on natural cotton plants after harvest. They allowed 13 buffalo to graze on BT cotton plants for one day, January 3rd, 2008. Within three days, all 13 buffalo were dead. They also lost 26 goats and sheep. I asked the villagers, how many of you personally have had itching from working in the BT cotton fields? Most of them raised their hands. In the state of Haryana, India, they feed cottonseed cake to buffalo. Most buffalo actually refuse to eat the cottonseed cake, but those that eat it, most have reproductive problems, including sterility, premature deliveries, abortions, and many of the calves died and adults died. We've also seen about two dozen farmers in the Midwest claim that their cows or pigs became sterile from certain varieties of BT corn. A farmer in Germany says that 12 of his cows died when fed exclusively a variety of BT corn. And in the Philippines, when people were living next to a particular BT corn variety, during the time of pollination, the people in the village experienced skin, respiratory, and intestinal reactions and fever. When the same seeds were planted in four more villages, the same symptoms returned. They also reported deaths among water buffaloes, chickens, and, and horses, and unexplained human deaths. When the Italian government conducted a study and fed Monsanto's BT corn to mice, the mice had massive immune responses. When the Austrian government fed corn that was both BT and Roundup Ready, the animals had less babies and smaller babies. Now these are the problems that may be resulting from the BT toxin itself, or they may be resulting from the massive collateral damage that results from the process of insertion. We don't know because no one is looking. In the case of Roundup Ready soy, we see a lot of serious problems. Soon after the GM soy was introduced to the UK, soy allergies skyrocketed by 50%. We know that there are many reasons why GM soy might be associated with higher levels of allergies. In fact, a skin prick test shows that some people can react to the GM soy, but not to a wild variety of soy. And they also found a new protein that was, had allergenic properties that was in the GM soy, but not the wild variety. When they fed GM soy to mice, there was a reduction in digestive enzymes by as much as 77%. When you impair digestion, it might increase the ability for allergens. This was of grave concern to the FDA scientists who said it would be a serious health hazard to introduce an antibiotic-resistant marker gene. They were concerned that the gene might transfer to pathogenic bacteria and create super diseases. Knowing that soy genes transfer, we know that, that the antibiotic-resistant genes might also transfer to create super diseases. When they fed genetically modified soy to female rats before they got pregnant, more than half of their babies died within three weeks. 
babies were also much smaller on average and in a subsequent study could not reproduce. When they fed genetically modified soy to male rats, the testicles actually changed from the normal pink to blue. When they fed genetically modified soy to male mice, their testicles also changed and damaged the young sperm cells. And when they looked at the offspring at the embryo stage of parent mice that were fed genetically modified soy, their DNA functioned differently compared to when parent mice ate non-GM soy. When they fed hamsters genetically modified soy for two years over three generations, by the third generation, most of the parent hamsters that were eating genetically modified soy lost the ability to have babies. The GM soy group also developed more slowly and matured sexually more slowly as well. It turns out the Roundup, which is being sprayed on millions of acres, primarily because of the Roundup-ready crops, has a tremendous impact on health. Now, it's designed, actually, to damage the health of plants. That's how, it, it, that's how it's an herbicide. When you spray a plant with Roundup, what it does is it goes into the plant and accumulates into the, into the parts of the plant that we eat. It also gets pushed out the roots into the soil, where it destroys beneficial microorganisms and enhances the harmful microorganisms, like like fusarium, which can produce mycotoxins, which themselves can be harmful to humans and mammals. Now, glyphosate, which is the main ingredient or the active ingredient in Roundup, was actually originally patented as a chelator, meaning that it binds with or kidnaps and holds hostage certain mineral nutrients like copper and zinc and manganese and magnesium and iron. And so when you spray the glyphosate on the crop, it bounds up the nutrients in the soil, making them less available for the plant. So that's another way that it helps, create, it helps kill plants. But when we eat the glyphosate, either in the plant or because of the contaminated groundwater, we also end up chelating some of the nutrients in our bodies, making it less available for our health and protection. And there's a lot of diseases that are associated with mineral deficiencies. Now, the Roundup itself is also toxic to humans and mammals. In fact, it interferes with endocrine development. It can cause, in certain rat studies, lower sperm counts, uh, abnormal or dead sperm, uh, lower testosterone level. So when we see the genetically modified Roundup-ready soy being fed to animals and causing reproductive problems, we don't know if it's the GMO component or the high residues of Roundup. In addition, the glyphosate in Roundup doesn't just dissipate. In fact, uh, two quarts, one, one in the United States and one in France, told Monsanto they had to stop saying that their Roundup was biodegradable. It actually accumulates in the soil and can last up to three years or longer. So the more we spray with Roundup, it has an accumulating effect so that anything that's, that's planted in that same field after Roundup can also uptake the Roundup. And it can be reactivated when you put in fertilizers. Even, they've even found glyphosate in the manure of chickens. So now if you spread chicken manure on a field you, to, to create increased nutrients, the glyphosate might tie up the nutrients, making it harder to nourish the plants. And we are flooding our country with this glyphosate. In fact, the weeds are developing resistance, so people are pouring on more glyphosate and more glyphosate, which is the active ingredient Roundup. One of the interesting aspects of genetic engineering 
is the uh, any time a scientist discovers a problem, they're attacked. It doesn't matter how much credibility they have, how what level of publication they put it in, they're attacked. Sometimes they lose their funding. Sometimes they're fired or lose tenure. I'll give you an example. The UK government wanted to prove to a skeptical public that GMOs were safe. So they put out a grant proposal trying to find someone who can design testing to show that GMOs were safe. 28 different scientists applied. They gave it to Dr. Arpad Pustai, the world's leading researcher in his field. He worked at one of the top nutritional research institutes in the country or in the world and was leading about 20 or 30 people on this grant. He fed genetically modified potatoes to rats as part of the protocol. The potatoes were engineered to produce an insecticide. Now he knew this insecticide was harmless to rats. He had fed huge amounts of the insecticide to rats in previous experiments. In fact, for this experiment, one group of rats was fed the GM potato that produced its insecticide. One group of rats were fed natural potatoes, and a third group, natural potatoes, plus the insecticide spiked directly into the diet. Only those that ate the GM potatoes got sick. So what was the cause? It was not the insecticide. It was somehow the process of genetic engineering which caused the massive damage to the rats, including potentially precancerous cell growth in their digestive tract, smaller brains, livers, and testicles, partial atrophy of the liver, and damaged immune system after only 10 days. He went public with his concerns and was a hero for about two days at his prestigious institute. Then two phone calls were allegedly placed from the UK Prime Minister's office, forwarded through the receptionist to the director of the institute. The next day, Dr. Pustai was fired from his job after 35 years and silenced with threats of a lawsuit. His team was disbanded, they never implemented his protocols, and his institute, plus the UK government, launched a campaign to destroy his reputation in order to protect the reputation of biotechnology. After seven months, by an order of parliament, his gag order was lifted, he got his data back, and it's now published. And it remains the most in-depth animal feeding study yet published on GMOs, implicating the process itself as causing harm. In Moscow, when the scientists discovered that Roundup-ready soy fed to female rats caused more than half of their babies to die within three weeks, she was told by her boss, who was being pressured by his boss, no more studies on GMOs. In fact, documents were burnt on her desk, samples were stolen. One of her colleagues tried to comfort her by saying, well, maybe the GM soy will solve the overpopulation problem. One of the criticisms that was leveled at the Russian scientists which has merit, is that she never conducted a biochemical analysis of the feed. So maybe there was some toxin mixed with the GM soy that caused this astounding death rate. But after she had done the research three times with similar results, coincidentally, the rat chow, which was being fed to all of the rats in her Russian facility, switched to be based on GM soy. So she couldn't do any more studies because she had no controls. But after two months, she had the brilliant idea to ask her colleagues What's the infant mortality rate in your mice studies? Let me say that again. But after two months, she had the brilliant idea to ask her colleagues after two months, what was the infant mortality in the rats that you're working with? It had skyrocketed to over 55%, suggesting that it wasn't a particular toxin in her batch, but it's a more generic aspect of genetically modified soy. When Dr. Carrasco in Argentina 
linked Roundup to birth defects, both in amphibians and possibly in humans. He was immediately attacked, and four people showed up at his place of business and tried to interrogate him in a very aggressive manner. Time and time again, when scientists discover adverse findings about GMOs, they're attacked viciously in the press, uh, through their colleagues. It happens so often that many scientists just give up, and they, they refuse to do any more research about GMOs. One of the myths of biotechnology is that GMOs are going to feed the world. Actually, they work against feeding a hungry world. If something is to feed the world, well, first of all, it has to increase yields. It has to be reliable. And yield increase actually has to be a, a way of solving the hunger problem. It also has to be healthy and better than competing technologies. GMOs fail on every count. First of all, the average GM crop reduces yield. It does not increase yield. Second, increased yield actually isn't the solution to hunger today. We have more food per person than any time in human history, but a billion people go to bed hungry or malnourished. It's a question of distribution and economic access. Also, GMOs are not reliable. Take the case of BT cotton in India. That Monsanto has convinced millions of farmers to plant BT cotton. And unfortunately, it doesn't always perform. In fact, the UK Daily Mail estimates that more than 125,000 farmers who planted BT cotton and were unable to even repay the high interest debts that they took out for the expensive seeds and associated chemicals committed suicide. Now this is a catastrophe. Some people put the number closer to 200,000. So this is an example of what's happening in a developing country and they're trying to convince us that GMOs are going to help the developing world. GMOs are also not better than competing technologies if you're trying to increase yields. In fact, studies on millions and millions of farmers show that sustainable techniques can increase yields by an average of 79%. Some studies show that organic agriculture can increase yields by 100%, even 300% in developing countries. If you look at the Rodale Institute, they did a side-by-side -side study with organic soy and corn versus non-organic. And they found that they actually have comparable yields, but the organic is better during times of adverse weather and also has less inputs. In January 1999 Biotechnology Conference in San Francisco, Arthur Anderson, a company that had consulted with Monsanto, they were also Enron's consultant, revealed how they had worked with their executives to create their plan. They asked Monsanto executives to describe their ideal future in 15 to 20 years. And the Monsanto executives described a world in which 100% of all the commercial seeds were genetically engineered and patented. And Anderson worked backwards from that goal to create the strategy and tactics to achieve it. At the same conference, another biotechnology company was projecting that within five years, by 2004, they would have a 95% replacement of all natural seeds. So the biotechnology industry is planning to replace nature. Fortunately, consumer concern has stopped that moving train. About three weeks after this conference, the gag order on Dr. Pustai was lifted. Within one week, 159 column feet of articles were written in Europe. Within a month, 750 articles were written. One editor said it divided society into two warring blocks. Within 10 weeks, the tipping point of consumer rejection had been achieved. Within a single week, in the end of April 1999, Virtually every major food company committed to stop using GM ingredients for their European brands, but not in the U.S. 
because it wasn't reported in the U.S. According to Project Censored, the Arpad Pustai story was one of the ten most underreported events of the year. In the United States, if you have asked the average American, have you ever eaten a genetically modified food in your life? 60% say no, 15% say I don't know. So three-quarters of Americans do not realize that they're eating GMOs in nearly every meal. The fact that GMOs flourish on the basis of consumer ignorance leaves the biotechnology industry extremely vulnerable. If some event or campaign were to increase the visibility of GMOs, especially the health dangers, we could see a tipping point in the United States like we've seen in Europe. In fact, bovine growth hormone, the genetically engineered drug that's injected into cows to increase milk supply, that's being ushered out because of consumer concern. You see, when you inject cows with bovine growth hormone, it changes the milk. There's more pus, more antibiotics used, more bovine growth hormone, and of greatest concern, more IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor 1, a very powerful hormone which is linked to cancer. Now, milk contains IGF-1 anyway, and milk drinkers have higher levels of IGF-1, and those with high levels of IGF-1 are more likely to have breast cancer, prostate cancer, colon and lung cancer. And it's in much higher levels in milk from cows treated with bovine growth hormone. I'll let you connect the dots. But as we explain this to consumers, their concern about drug milk has caused the manufacturers and dairies to kick it out. Walmart has kicked it out of its store brand, Starbucks out of its stores, Dannon and Yoplait, Kroger's, uh, Publix. In fact, most of the major dairies in the United States have stopped using bovine growth hormone because of consumer concern. So our campaign for healthier eating in America is now designed to create a tipping point against all GMOs in the food supply. In fact, it's already, it's already happening. The fastest growing store brand claim in 2009 was GMO-free. And, and Supermarket News, a big trade journal for the food industry, predicted that 2010 would see an unprecedented upsurge of consumer awareness and concern about GMOs. And as I travel around the country, as I do every year, I see more informed and enthusiastic activists and consumers getting the word out about GMOs. So we now are equipping them with strategies and tools and speaker training, and we have a campaign to hit the tipping point of consumer rejection in the United States between 10 10 10, that's October 10, 2010, and 11 11 11, within a year, a month, and a day. So I invite you to come to our website at healthiereating.org to get involved to sign up for a healthy eating pledge, to get the tools to invite others to do the same, so that together we can create a tipping point. You see, we only need about 5% of U.S. shoppers. We think that's more than enough to create the tipping point. And 15 million people, 5.6 million households, that's easy. Why is the number so low? Because GMOs give no consumer benefits. There's no reason why a company would say, well, I need to keep my GMOs because it has a better mouthfeel or sweetness or shelf life. If a small percentage of people were to reject GMOs, it would become a pure marketing liability. The companies don't even have to switch recipes in order to get rid of GMOs. They can just use the non-GM corn and soy, as many companies have done already, like Whole Foods for its store brands, like many companies in the natural food industry. There's also a new third-party verified seal called Non-GMO Project Verified, which is being put on products that show that the non-GMO claim has been third-party verified. So the entire natural food industry is getting on board. Mothers are getting on board. 
Doctors and medical organizations are prescribing non-GMO diets. Many spiritual and religious groups are saying that GMO really means God move over, and they're against it. We have enough people to eliminate GMOs. We just have to get the word out to those who are already receptive. If we need only 15 million Americans, consider that 28 million Americans already buy organic food on a regular basis. 87 million people are strongly against GMOs, and 159 million people, 53% of Americans, the majority, say they would avoid GMOs if they were labeled. So we have a non-GMO shopping guide to help people make healthier non-GMO choices. So go to non-gmoshoppingguide.com to see for yourself which products are non-GMO and how to avoid them. Right now, it is legal to call something non-GMO, but the Codex negotiation team in 2010, in May, went to a conference in Quebec armed with a new proposal that could ultimately make it very difficult for people to label something as non-GMO or even keep the requirements in Europe for GMO labeling. Fortunately, the U.S. didn't get much traction at that meeting and only got supported by about three countries out of 50 that participated, and we hope that that can go away very soon. When RBGH was approved, Michael Taylor, Monsanto's former attorney, who later became Monsanto's vice president, was in charge. So it got approved with very little testing and no labeling requirements. In fact, Taylor wrote a white paper suggesting that if any dairies want to label their products as free from RBGH, he suggested that they also include a disclaimer that says, according to the FDA, there's no difference between milk from cows supplemented with RBGH and those not supplemented. Now, this was a recommendation. It wasn't a requirement. But as soon as companies started to actually say RBGH-free on their labels, Monsanto came in and sued them. And now companies are putting that disclaimer on there to, to meet Monsanto's very unlegal and inappropriate requirements. But then Monsanto got some states to actually implement a requirement that dairies put that disclaimer on there. In fact, Ohio right now has a horrible law which, has, which specifies the font size and the location of the disclaimer in such a horrible way that some companies are saying that they'd rather take the RBGH-free claim altogether off of their milk carton as a, uh, rather than having to fulfill that requirement. And that means any national brand that's sold in Ohio has that problem. So it really is a problem. We're actually trying to convince the governor of Ohio to change his mind immediately so we don't lose the traction that we've gained all these years. The junk food eating couch potato in America does not know that he or she is eating GMOs and will never know that we got rid of it for them because it only takes a small percentage to reject GMOs in the marketplace. We don't need to inform everyone. In fact, there are so many people receptive to our message, we can get rid of GMOs without having to convince anyone who is resistant. There is, in fact, an economic divide between those that can afford organic and those that can't. Those in inner cities don't have access to fresh vegetables and fruits very often. But as far as GMOs go, I'm optimistic that we can get rid of them so quickly that it won't be a problem for very long. Of all of the toxins that are released into the environment, GMOs are of a special class. You see, with genetic engineering, you have pollution of the gene pool. It's a self-propagating genetic pollution. The genes that we released in this generation already can outlast nuclear waste. They can go on forever. We have no technology to fully clean up this type of pollution. 
Certainly we can reduce it dramatically. But until we have some technique to identify GMOs at a distance, we are stuck with GMOs possibly forever. Imagine being hired by a company that says, we have a little problem, we'd like you to organize the recall of our salmon from the ocean. There's a company that wants to introduce genetically modified mosquitoes. Imagine trying to do a recall there. GM pollen has already contaminated the indigenous corn varieties of Mexico, and we have no technology to clean that up. What we've done is irreversible damage, and this is something that is highly irresponsible, unconscionable. And it was done over the objections of scientists, over the objections of science, a collusion between government and industry. If you look back at the records of what actually happened at the FDA in 1991 and 92, the scientists were very clear. They said GMOs could create higher levels of existing toxins, new toxins, they might bioaccumulate toxins from the environment, they might produce allergies or new diseases or nutritional problems. They said the process of genetic engineering is different and leads to different risks. So what did the government say? The government said, we know of no significant differences, we know of no significant risks. Completely lying about what actually was said within the department. The first genetically modified crop to be reviewed by the FDA was the Flavor Saver tomato engineered for longer shelf life. And that was the only company that actually gave raw feeding study data to the FDA to evaluate. It turns out the rats refused to eat the tomato. Now this is not uncommon. In fact, eyewitness reports from all over North America and around the world show that a variety of animals, when given a choice, avoid eating GMOs. Cows, pigs, squirrels, geese, elk, deer, raccoons, mice, rats, chickens, and buffaloes. So it's my job to get humans up to the level of animals. When they force-fed the rats, the tomatoes, 7 of 20 developed stomach lesions, 7 of 40 died within two weeks. Now, if you look at the data that was recovered from a lawsuit from within the FDA, they're clear that there were unanswered questions related to safety and that the tomatoes did not meet their normal standard of reasonable certainty of no harm. But the political appointees did not put up any red flag to block the tomatoes. In fact, they said that the tomatoes passed with such flying colors that no subsequent GM application is it going to even require the level of evaluation that the tomatoes had. From that point on, it was purely a voluntary consultation process where the companies can choose if they wanted to even talk to the FDA, and they could determine what data, if any, they were to turn over to the FDA. And it's always been summary data, not enough to properly evaluate safety. If the reviewers want more information and ask for it, they're typically ignored. And at the end of the exercise, they write a letter. For example, a letter to Monsanto which says, Monsanto believes its foods are safe and, and understands it's its responsibility to make that determination. So the FDA has no further questions. The FDA does not even approve GM crops. They let the companies do it themselves. When you look at the actual research that's done by the companies, they have rigged their research to avoid finding problems. Even very serious problems, even deaths of animals, are dismissed as not statistically significant or not biologically significant or not treatment-related without scientific justification. 
I've analyzed with many, many scientists around the world how these biotech companies have bad science down to a science. They use the wrong controls, the wrong detection methods, the wrong statistics, the wrong reporting protocols. It's absolutely horrendous. I'll give you some examples. When Monsanto wanted to pretend that injecting cows with bovine growth hormone did not interfere with the fertility of cows, stolen documents from the FDA made public revealed that they apparently added cows secretly to the study that were pregnant before injection. When researchers wanted to prove that pasteurization destroys bovine growth hormone in milk, they pasteurized the milk 120 times longer than normal. They only destroyed 19% of it. So they added powdered hormone to the milk at huge volumes and then heated it 120 times longer than normal. And only under that rigged condition did they destroy 90% of the hormone. But that's what the FDA reported, that pasteurization destroys 90% of the hormone. That's just an example of what we read over and over again. And it, sometimes it's very subtle, and sometimes it's very, very blatant lies and misinformation. Because GMOs are not labeled, it's hard to file a lawsuit, because it's hard to trace back who's eating GMOs and who's not. So it's one of the ways that the biotech industry protects itself, by not letting us know what is GMO and what is not. I've talked to some former Monsanto employees and got quite an interesting insight into the company. One scientist told me that his colleagues were doing safety studies on milk from cows injected with their bovine growth hormone. When they saw how much IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor 1, was in the milk, these three scientists refused to drink milk again unless it was organic. He also told me that there was a study that showed problems with rodents that were fed one of Monsanto's GM crops. So instead of withdrawing the crops, they decided to rewrite the study to make it look less of an adverse finding. A former salesman for Monsanto took the job because he was so impressed by the words of former CEO Robert Shapiro, who claimed that GMOs would help the world. And so when the employee orientation meeting happened in St. Louis, this man, Kirk Azevedo, stood up and described all these great things that Robert Shapiro had said. After the meeting, a vice president pulled him aside and said, wait a minute. What Robert Shapiro says is one thing, what we do is something else. We're here to make money, we don't even know what he's talking about. The FDA has proven to be a regulatory agency that has been hijacked by industry, both on the drug side and the food side. Many of the people that approved bovine growth hormone either worked for Monsanto directly or indirectly, and one person actually did research for Monsanto and then took over the department that evaluated her own research. As far as what we need, we need an independent body to do evaluate the safety of GMOs. We need generations of evaluating GMOs before they're put onto the market. You see, we're just babes in the woods in our understanding about the DNA. And we're making fundamental changes in an area that we have very little understanding of. We redefine what a gene is, how a DNA functions every few months. And yet the science behind the genetic engineering of food is based on assumptions that have already been proven wrong 30 years ago. So we're in a situation right now where industry has pulled the wool, has pulled the wool over the eyes of the public and has millions of people that they support within the agricultural industry and with the academic side and, of course, within government that keep pushing the same myths. They give the myth that it's safe, that it's been proven safe, 
that it's precise technology, that it'll feed the world, that it's needed, and that it's here to stay. All of those things are false. In fact, it's a very dangerous technology fraught with unpredicted side effects. It hasn't been proven safe. In fact, the industry research is rigged to avoid finding problems. And FDA doesn't require a single piece of, of research for safety. It's unreliable. It can easily be withdrawn in terms of, well, it can be, it can be stopped, but it won't be 100% withdrawn from the genetic pollution. But we can do a good job there, too. Henry Miller used to work for the FDA and said to the New York Times that big ag has gotten everything they have asked or told the regulatory agencies to do. And that's the way it is. Big ag, big corporations, there's, it's hard to define where corporations end and where the government starts. There's a connection there which is extremely unhealthy and can have long-term consequences and already has long-term consequences. And GMOs are one of the most serious because it affects everyone who eats and all future generations and the entire ecosystem. What you see in genetic engineering is a pattern which is prevalent throughout the government where corporations have influenced the regulations over, the, over themselves in such a way that they have given, they were given free reign to make big bucks without consideration for health and environmental consequences. And fortunately, from the side of GM food, it is easier to stop than the other major problems. It's easier to stop than problems that require policy change because we can do it from the side of the market. Because people vote with their forks, they vote with their dollars, we can have a revolution in the kitchen. And that's what we're focused on. We realize, you know, I have a small NGO, small nonprofit organization. How can I go against the millions upon millions that Monsanto spends to lobby Washington, to buy and pay for elections, etc.? We can't. But we can go to consumers who are concerned about their health, to health-conscious shoppers, to parents of young kids, to doctors and their patients, to the general public where they're concerned about what they put in their mouths and the mouths of their families, and give them accurate defensible information about why GMOs are unhealthy and why we shouldn't eat GMOs at all. And then give them a shopping guide, how to avoid eating GMOs. This, these are the tools to affect policy at this point, greater than lobbyists, greater than money for, for campaigns, because this is the tool that will get the food companies to kick out GMOs when they become a marketing liability. Years ago, they called 98% of the DNA junk genes because they didn't code for proteins they figured they were just a refuse pile of previously accumulated genetic material now they realize oh it's very important they used to think that genes could be sorted and, and, and moved in any direction and anywhere on the genome because they acted independently now they realize that there are families of genes that work together as a network they used to think that one gene produced one protein produced one trait that's false so what we have here is an evolving understanding of the most fundamental level of biology. And yet the technology of genetic engineering is based largely on the false assumptions. Now, the fact that one gene does not produce one protein producing one trait in almost every case is why they've limited their genetic engineering to basically two traits, poison, poison drinking and poison production. They can't easily 
create drought tolerance or salt tolerance or higher yields because that involves a family of genes and a network of genes that we don't understand the language that they're speaking. But there's an arrogance that we can just go in there and try things and put it on the market without actually even testing the safety of the products that they're creating on animals or humans. They feed an animal GM crops for 90 days at low concentrations and figure if it passes 90-day test, then we can feed it to humans at high volume for the rest of their lives. It's complete arrogance and extremely dangerous. One of Monsanto's plans is to introduce Terminator technology. It's not yet introduced, but it can have a catastrophic effect on agriculture around the world. It's a technology that forces plants to grow sterile seeds so that farmers cannot plant them year after year. Now, Monsanto, when it was originally developed by a number of companies, including the USDA, they were targeting the developing countries where 1.4 billion farmers save their seeds. If there's changes in weather, if there's damage from insects or from disease, we have a huge diversity of plants growing on farmers' fields around the world. We can find the genetics to withstand these changes. But if you wipe out that diversity and limit it just to the few seeds that are available in the catalog, you are risking the entire population's food supply in order to promote the profits of these companies. So this is a huge and horrific mess. And the world has risen up against Terminator technology because they want to protect the ability of farmers to save seeds year after year and not turn them into bio-surfs where they go back and like, like, a, new, like a new bio-colonialism where the Monsantos of the world force farmers to buy seeds year after year in order to maintain a, life, a, a profit and lifestyle. The Department of Justice and Department of Agriculture have teamed up to do an evaluation of whether the agriculture industry in the United States has reached a level of monopoly or a duopoly or whatever. And uh, I certainly think that it's very, very dangerous right now, that it's, it's too concentrated. Um, they're controlling prices, they're controlling distribution, they're pushing their GM seeds, eliminating the availability of non-GM seeds, reducing the genetic diversity, uh, and basically keeping farmers desperate. They're always removing enough money from the system to keep farmers desperate, which is one way that they apparently control them or convince them to keep doing whatever the next magic bullet is from Monsanto and these other companies. Contamination is a real serious issue. Um, the biotech industry originally promised it would be impossible to contaminate. In fact, one executive from a company testified in Europe that you'd be more likely to get pregnant from a toilet seat than be contaminated by a GM crop. Now they've changed their tune and say, well, contamination is inevitable, but it's not important. Uh, it's very important. Contamination happens at a higher rate than anyone's predicted. Um, someone was looking at uh, genetically modified alfalfa, which is out in very small quantities right now because it was taken off the market, because it was approved illegally, but a small amount got on there. So someone was checking, and in 2008, there was a 3% contamination of the 200 lots that he tested. In 2009, it was up to 12%. In canola, which cross-pollinates very easily, and the seeds move by wind, they looked at 33 bags of non-GMO canola seed. 32 of the 33 had at least a very tiny amount of contamination. It is difficult to get clean seed in canola, a little bit less difficult in corn, a little bit less difficult in soy, depending on the cross-pollination. But you also have contamination year after year. You plant GM canola in one year, and if you plant non-GM canola, 
you'll still have over 1% contamination for the next 16 years because unharvested canola seed can drop and into the into the soil and germinate year after year and they produce thousands of seeds and they also partially drop and not get harvested so there's a contamination over time then you have this bizarre ridiculous movement to introduce pharmaceuticals and industrial chemicals grown inside the plant and we've had a near miss uh, a few years ago where there was corn varieties engineered to produce a vaccine for pig diarrhea. And the following year, the corn sprouted, the stubble remained inside a, corn, inside a soybean field and was harvested, and they found that out just in time and saved it from the food supply. But I suspect that other of these industrial chemical producing crops have contaminated the food supply at some point. I think it's just ridiculous that they plant crops that produce pharmaceutical chemicals outdoors and in food crops. Years ago, there was a few countries in sub-Saharan Africa that had a famine, and so the U.S. sent genetically modified corn as a food aid. When they discovered it was genetically modified, they asked the U.S. to please substitute non-GM corn, and the U.S. refused. Some countries decided to accept it, but said, please mill it so it won't be in seed form, so our farmers won't plant it. The U.S. said, tough. You have to eat it or starve. Fortunately, South Africa came in and milled it. But one country, Zambia, sent out a fact-finding team to the U.S. and Europe. And they came back, and for many reasons, including scientific reasons, they said, absolutely do not allow genetically modified corn to be distributed to the famine victims in this country. So they were able to find other sources of food. But this really upset the U.S. because the myth was that GMOs would feed the hungry world, and here was a hungry country saying no. So they did a full court press on Zambia, and I visited there and heard some of the stories. There was a couple of Jesuit priests who were talking at conferences about the inappropriateness of genetic engineered crops based on the statistics that they had gathered. So the U.S. government tried to stifle the Jesuit priests. Colin Powell contacted the Vatican, and someone else contacted the head of the Jesuits in the U.S., and they kept trying to, they were lying about what these Jesuit priests were saying. And I spoke to and interviewed one of the Jesuit priests. Um, one of the ministers, I believe the Minister of Agriculture, was introduced to the minister, the Secretary of Agriculture in the U.S., Ann Veneman, and when she heard he was from Zambia, she just rebuffed him, saying, backward country, and walked away. They sent congressmen and senators and professors. It was like they were just doing their best to try and convince Zambia that genetic engineering was okay. But the Zambian people, the Zambian scientists, and the government held their ground. And I think it was a great, a very smart idea because, you see, those that get food aid, 90% of their caloric intake is the aid itself. So if the, if the food aid was genetically modified BT corn or Roundup Ready corn, that means they were going to have a much higher level of this genetically modified crop in their system than any animal has ever been fed in a laboratory for a test. And if BT toxin does in fact disrupt the immune system or have toxic reactions or cause leaky gut or any of these things that it might do, then this particular population that's already uh, malnourished and probably immune deficient would be just absolutely targets for a disaster. So I actually congratulated the government for finding other non-GMO foods when I was there and uh, went on national television and national radio saying, you know, thank you for, for fighting off the American bully in this case. Uh, a colleague of mine was um, 
debating a senior executive from USAID, which is a big uh, pro-GM organization from the U.S. government. And they, they were debating in South Africa. And after the lights went down, the cameras stopped. They were continued to argue. And in the middle of this executive's anger, she let it loose, saying, you just wait. There'll be so much GM corn in South Africa, no one in Africa could plant non-GM corn. So this was an indication of their plan for contaminating the African continent. This was their plan. It's interesting that when it comes to safety regulations, the biotech industry insists that its crops are no different from conventional natural varieties. When it comes to patenting, they say, oh no, it's completely unique and worthy of patenting. Uh, patenting of life, patenting of crops, these are real problems that have allowed the biotech juggernaut to take off and to sacrifice issues of health for profit. Uh, we need to re-examine and revoke these, this concept of patenting life and also look at the way that they actually file patents on indigenous knowledge. Uh, companies have tried to patent flour used for chapati, chapati breads in India, for neem in India, which is a natural product that's been developed for years, for, for basmati rice, for all these different things. They'll go in like bioprospectors and biopirates to steal some of the indigenous resources that have possibly been de developed by farmers over generations. And because they discover some ways in which the uh, characteristics work on a molecular level, they file a patent, and then they can sell the products of their patent back to the indigenous countries that developed it. So it's an absolutely unfair situation and needs to be looked at. Now, my focus is primarily the food safety. And the, I chose food safety because I believe that's the leverage to get rid of GMOs. You can be very against Monsanto. You can watch the world according to Monsanto and want to break something at the end of it. But it doesn't really speak so much about the health, so you don't realize that eating a corn chip might be just that bad. You know, and the soy might be just that bad. There's tremendous harm that can come from eating GMOs if you look at the animal feeding studies, the livestock issues, and what's happened in the U.S. since GMOs were introduced from a correlational side. So if you, if you talk about the patent issue or the environmental issue or the social justice issue or corporate takeover, you can arouse anger in people, but they may just go out and buy a GMO and eat it. If you explain that eating a corn chip that's genetically engineered might turn your intestinal bacteria into living pesticide factories, then they put the brakes on for themselves and their family. And that is what's going to be leveraged for getting rid of GMOs, when people understand the health dangers and make healthier choices. The bees are dying in a thing called colony collapse disorder, which is not well understood. Now, it's, in my opinion, it's definitely not primarily caused by GMOs because they're dying in large numbers in other countries where they don't plant GMOs. More recent information suggests that the seed treatments from neonicotinoid insecticides are the cause. Now, these are insecticides created from nicotine or tobacco. When biotech companies introduced a variety of BT corn that kills the rootworm, they found that it wasn't very effective for the first few weeks of the corn's, corn plant's life. So the, the rootworm or, or soil-based organisms could destroy the seed and the early plant. So what they did is they developed a way to encapsulate a systemic insecticide based on tobacco called neonicotinoid insecticides and um, put them on the seeds 
And the insecticide would then infiltrate into the seed and into the plant and exude out of all the different cells of the plant for several weeks. That way it would sort of do the job to protect against the soil-based organisms until the Bt kicked in. But this neonicotinoid insecticide is known to disrupt the navigation ability and memory of bees, where they may not be able to get back to the hive. Now, it was believed that the seed treatments, that these type of seed treatments were responsible in large part or completely for colony collapse disorder. And when they banned these type of insecticides from several countries in Europe, like in Italy, the next year there was no colony collapse the next year except in one hive where they used the old seeds that still had it. They couldn't figure out the vector, how it was that the bees were getting the seed treatment from the plants until they discovered that plants, um, they exude a certain nectar or, or water that's concentrated with their nutrients in the morning, like dew. And these, these uh, bees fan the, uh, the hive to keep the air conditioning going all night, and they get exhausted, so they immediately leave the hive in the morning and go to the, the nearest source of nutrition, which is this nectar on the plants nearby. But this nectar or water contains the insecticide as well. So now they understand the vectors in terms of how these honeybees are getting large doses of this insecticide. And one of the characteristics of colony collapse disorder is that there's oftentimes no bees in the hive. That they go out and they don't come back. So we think that the neonicotinoid seed treatments, which were increased because of the use of genetic engineering, is probably responsible for or at least in large part, of colony collapse disorder. But there are more deaths among the bees in the United States than in other countries. And we think that that increase might be the result of genetically engineered crops, particularly the Bt toxin, which is designed to kill insects. It's not acutely toxic to bees, but in some studies, they found that the bees that grabbed pollen from the corn plants that were genetically engineered, they actually were susceptible to a viral infection, whereas the controls were not. There was another study that showed that when the bees took the pollen, the, the genes from the genetically modified crops transferred into the microorganisms inside the guts of the bees. This also happens in, in humans. This could mean long-term effects from short-term exposure. Genetically modified foods and crops are one of the most dangerous health and environmental catastrophes we're facing. And yet very few people know about it. There's very few money. There's very few organizations funding those of us who are trying to stop it. I mean, I struggle year after year with, you know, a skeleton crew, and I see things like global warming just pulling millions and millions of dollars, and we just get chump change and volunteers to try and stop this juggernaut. Fortunately, it's easier to stop GMOs than it is these other problems because we don't have to affect government policy. We can do it through market choices, and that's what we plan to do.
is a fact.